Testing live. Test, test. Test one, two, three. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's no, there's no pressure to be So uh, we're, we'll just go ahead and say we're live now. Okay. Uh, if you're ready. Yeah, yeah. let's do it. Um, we're here with Ma- Mark Plessing- Plessinger. Plessinger. Um, uh, native to Savannah, Georgia. Yes. Went to University of South Carolina. Yes. Started Frame of Mind in 2007. Seven. Yes. Um, also was uh, the founder of First Thursday here in Columbia, South Carolina. Yes. Um, started the Cult of Eyewear. And yep. then in 2000, when was it, 2011, you guys moved to State Street? Uh, 2014. 14? We put seven years, 2015. 2015, we moved. Yeah, we you put guys... seven and a half years on, a little over seven and a, a little under seven and a half years on uh, Main Street. And then five straight years on uh, State Street in West Columbia. So a little over 12 years total. And now you guys have just closed up shop and yes. you are... Venturing to Dayton, Ohio. Correct. Uh, to start a whole new chapter yes. in your arts career, arts business career. Um, we're going to get to how you how you um, label that and how you kind of justify <laughs> it for yourself, which is I'm, I'm completely interested in um, because people ask me what I do, and obviously I'm a contemporary sculptor that does performance art, but I do everything from graphic design to podcasting, media content, all that stuff. So it's going to be interesting to how someone else with many different hats, labels, and balances it all. So um, did you, so you, you graduated from USC, right. and you stayed here? No. No, okay, Get, go, let's go start from there. Let's okay, start. so I, I, there's a little bit of a gap in what, what we said earlier. There's, I, I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> I call myself a half-breed at times, or a hybrid. Um, I have a parent from Ohio, and I have a parent from, the South or Savannah, Georgia. So I was born in Savannah, Georgia. I spent about five through 13, four through 13. Uh, so your elementary school years, I spent up in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, I came back, did basically middle, uh, middle school, high school, and college. And middle school and high school in Augusta. So I was at, uh, did, I graduated high school at Westside High School over in Augusta. Okay, yeah, I know Patriots. Westside. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I know Westside High School. Um, and then I moved over to Columbia and went, did actually five years at USC. That's cause of a massive change in my program. <laughs> <laughs> I lost a full year, uh, but graduated from USC in Hotel Restaurant Tourism Administration. Okay. Which is, it's not a defunct program. It is still a program that is involved, but it's changed a little bit. And it's now called HRSM, which is Hospitality, Retail, and Sport Management. Okay. Um, so it's slightly different, but it's still the same basic thing. Gotcha. Um, once I graduated from there, uh, which was in 2016, yeah, 20, uh, not 2016, sorry, uh, 96. <laughs> um, I graduated high school in 91, I graduated there in 96. Um, I left and went back to Ohio um, and <laughs> got out of the restaurant industry because that's what my specialization was in college. Got out of that real quickly. Didn't want to put 70 to 80 hours a weekend. So 
all of you managers out there that are in the restaurant industry, I feel your pain. I chose one of the not hardest, to get involved in it. <laughs> it's one of the hardest business to be involved it's in. It's a very hard business to get involved with. The main reason why I even got involved with it was because when my parents moved to Columbia, when I started college, they actually bought a small restaurant. Um, so I actually have some history, deeper history, even than what I've done the last 12 years. Um, I did five years of, of owning a small restaurant on South Main Street. Okay. Um, uh, we were over there across from, back in the days, it was the Honeycomb Dorms. Uh, if anybody remembers the Honeycomb yes, yep, Dorms. I do. It's, um, we were in there. There's a, if you know where the Moe's is at, mm-hmm. that was actually where the last incantation of our restaurant was oh, in yeah. that building right where Moe's is at. So. I did five years there. When I graduated, I left, went to Ohio, got out of the, the, the uh, restaurant industry. Being in a small family-owned restaurant is quite a bit different than being involved in a corporate-owned restaurant. Yeah, those are, yeah there's no, uh, yeah, there's, you see all the ugly. Oh, and they exact a price out of you. So I got out of that and fell into eyewear. I, it wasn't by design. I needed a job. I got into it. And that's informed the last 23 years of my life. Wow. So I've been involved in the eyewear industry for 23 years. Um, I spent about nine years there and then came back. been here for 15 years, so I guess I came back in 2005. Okay. Started your own shop right off the, right off the uh, bat? I actually started piecing it together when we got here. I worked for a doctor uh, for a little while, put a couple years in with a doctor as I pieced together, um, you know, Finding locations, looking for, feeling it out. Did you, of, you yeah? Know. Did you know there was a market? Did you kind of have an idea of yeah, what you were on? You know, your, your your take on uh, eyewear is much different than like yeah. you know the normal shops. That yeah, you, you know when you when you the, let, let me say it this way. So the experience that I had in Ohio, you know. I started with lunch crafters. Everybody knows lunch crafters. I, I, you know, that's kind of kind of a, a normal starting space, I, I guess you could say, for people in the industry. Um, you know, they gave me the foundation, but I, you know, me, I couldn't do the corporate world. So I got out of the corporate world within three to four years, and I went to private practice. And I, you know, you go from what everybody knows as an optical shop or the optical industry, which is, you know, your Gucci's and your Ray Bans and all of these pretty well-known names. I was lucky enough that I was introduced to um, a boutique uh, up in Dayton, Ohio that, you know, I mean, I thought I was always kind of in some of the boutique world until I ran into this new location or this not new-to-me location, and, and I was lucky enough to get hired there. And, and getting that job, it's, it kind of all coincided, you know, it's <laughs> Kind of a funny side topic, but when, you know, when people say you hit 30, your brain changes, they ain't joking. Yeah, I know. Like, you know, my brain completely changed when I hit 30. You know, whatever I was before 30 never really truly included art for whatever reason. I'm not saying that I didn't appreciate art or that I wasn't surrounded by it, but I just wasn't aware of it. It wasn't a part of my, the way my brain functioned. For whatever reason, when I hit 30, I can't tell you why, art started to become a very major part of the way I thought. I started to appreciate the art I was surrounded with. I was finding new forms of art that I had never really 
it's not that I hadn't seen them before, but I hadn't seen them with my eyes before, you know, I hadn't really felt them. So all of that coincides with about the same time I started working for this optical shop. And the, the products that he carries is, you know, like no other. Um, very artistic. Well, a lot of extremely artistic, very colorful, very unique, you know, um, textured. You know, eyewear at that point, to me, you know, eyewear is a functional item. When I got to him and my eyes were opening up about art and I saw the lines that he carried, it was like, holy cow, then you realize that really, truly art does surround you. It can be in the most benign things that you could ever imagine. I used to say it all the time, even the plates that you eat off of or the silverware that you eat with is a form of art. Even if it's a mass produced, it still took somebody to sit down and design that and to put that into a process to get made. So even on that level, it's art. But to see the stuff that that he carried, it just like, it completely, completely expanded my mind. So when, fast forward, I moved back down to South Carolina. There's nobody here doing that. You know, there's, there's the lines that I was used to selling. There was like absolutely nobody. (laughs) None of the lines that I was used to selling had any representation in Columbia, South Carolina. There was a little bit of representation in Charleston. There was one store in Charleston that had a couple of the lines that I was used to selling. But other than that, that was it. And I discovered that South Carolina, take this however people want to take it, um, maybe this is an eye-opening statement, but I discovered that in most people's view, at least in my industry, the optical industry, there's a ginormous hole in the southeast. And South Carolina is a predominant part of that. Like, when you say hole, are you talking like a cultural hole? Well, meaning mean? that there's absolutely no representation for most of these lines. Like, they can't even get somebody in South Carolina to carry these lines. Like, they're just, they, there's just nobody in South Carolina that carries them. Um, large parts of Georgia are the same way. So it's not just South Carolina, okay. but... Uh, small parts of North Carolina. There's some places in North Carolina that do carry. Charlotte has most of what we, what, what I used to carry. Um, but South Carolina as a whole, very, 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 very underrepresented in what you see across the United States. Okay. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I was aware of, you know, I mean, farm towns in Illinois carry it, you know albeit funky and different, but farm towns in Illinois carry it, you know. Um, Did you say when you saw that hole, it was like, ooh, goody, I got something a, that d- here? D- that's that exactly, it's like, okay, you know, now here's the here's what I've done, here's what I'm excited about, here's what I love, and here's a hole. So it's kind of, to me, was one of those, you know, hey, this is great, you know, you, 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 you jump in the pond, you, you maybe miss the sign that says, no swimming piranhas. <laughs> That was my yeah. next question. Yeah. I was like, it's like you start serving a new dish. I was like, yeah. somebody like, I never had that before, but they're too, too scared it's, to try it. it. It was, you know, it, it was, for me, it was the, 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 the naivety of, of, of youth or innocence. And I just jumped in going, okay, I understand that this product isn't represented here, but now's the time. You can look all over the United States and, you know, you'll see it. It's represented. It's there. 
And so that informed my business. It was like, I'm going to take the challenge on. You know, people are not used to seeing this product. I'm going to jump in because this is a product that I know is a, it's a, it's a valuable product. It's well worth it. And it's going to change people's minds about how what they see eyewear, yeah. what, you, what you put on your face. Again, if you, you, know, if you go back and, and look at the early years of Frame of Mind, everything was, was marketed in a way of changing the way you see yourself and the way you see the things around you. Because once you have, anybody can make a really good pair of glasses. And I don't, you know, I get in trouble when I say that in my industry. People get mad at me. I'll say in our industry, I'm going to say something that's relatively controversial. Where we're at in our industry, the computers that run everything as far as the lenses, 90% of your lenses can be run off the same computer system, the same models, the same system. So the accuracy within your lenses, you have a relatively high chance of getting a pretty decent Pair of glasses. Pair of glasses from an optical standpoint. I'm not going to stand here and say places like me or a couple other of the more higher-end places in town aren't worth it. We definitely are worth it. We do tend to get products that are different than your standard. But from a philosophical or from an industry standing, to me, we have reached a point within the industry where the math is all the same. So every so optical would, shop, whether it's me or it's a Walmart, has the same, uh, they, can, they have access to the same math. We all have access to the same math. We all have access to the same machines. So for me, when I started the business, it was no longer about the math that makes the optics right. It was about the style. It was about, okay, you can go to Walmart, you can go to a doctor's office, you can go to an optical shop like me, and you got a relatively good chance of getting, being able to see out of all three of those relatively equally. But what you get from Walmart is different than what you get from a, a, a doctor's office, which is what you, it's totally different than what you got from me. Right. Um, and so that's where I was taking it. I was trying to take the whole thing out of a medical kind of feel, a medical necessity, and put it into the realms of art. So it was trying to take an everyday object and showing you that it's art. And also exactly. special for you individually. Like you're making it yours, the experience yes. of how you're choosing Absolutely. it. All that stuff. So did you guys jump right into Main Street? Yes. We, <laughs> we looked around. It took me six months, maybe a year of looking. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, there were certain areas I wasn't going to go simply because of geography I love Lexington. I love the Northeast. Nothing wrong with those. But when you're trying to draw people from an entire metropolitan area, you have to find a common point in the middle. I agree. Yeah. So knowing that the Northeast is, you know, Lexington people aren't going to go to the Northeast and Northeast people aren't going to go to Lexington. It is what it is. You, gen you generally have a shot at making it downtown. Most of the people in the Northeast, most people in Lexington are going to go downtown. Yeah. Exactly. So you taking those two markets out of it, then you look at you know you look at your Vista, you look at Five Points, you look at Divine Street. You know, Main Street resonated with me. It was the one place in town that had a metropolitan feel. Like it's the one street that you can get out and walk down, and it feels some semblance feels like a New York City or a downtown it's a, yeah, Charles, it's a metropolitan uh, Charlotte. Yeah, it's a metropolitan feel. So. It just, it just cried out to me, and 
you know, at the time that we moved there, it was they had done a little bit of streetscaping, I think up to the 1400 block. Of course, we moved on to the 1500 block. So we predated the streetscaping for the 15, 16, and 1700 blocks. Um, so we were before some of that movement. Uh, we jumped in at the same time that there was some movement to get some apartments going, some living down there. Of course, the Museum of Art was already there. But so a lot was, has changed since then. A, a lot has dramatically then, changed, yeah. yeah. So, so this was before all the, re, all the, the revitalization that totally. has happened in the last 10 years. Yes. We kind of sort of helped kick that off. I mean, I, I'm not going to say that. Oh, we'll get into that, absolutely. Yeah, yeah totally. So, yeah, well, that, all right, so Frame of Mind opens up. I mean, you guys take off. When did the art and First Thursday and all that stuff start happening? When did you see the whole? Uh, the, obviously, you did see another hole. And you were trying to fill it. Well, you know, you again, fo foolish people do foolish things at times. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just had this inkling that I had to have my own place. I had to do it the way I wanted to do it. And I basically didn't have any backing. So you basically bootstrap it. You go into open a location. You don't have any financial backing whatsoever other than what you got in your bank She's account. She's going to debt. Just go in, just went in realizing we're going to go into debt. Well, real quickly, you realize, well, gosh, you got to figure out a way to get people in the door. Whether you got the greatest selection of eyewear in the world, the greatest idea in the world, doesn't matter. If people don't know you, they don't know what you're doing. If they're not aware of you, it doesn't matter. So very quickly, there was the sit back and go, okay, what are we going to do to get people in? How are we going to make this happen? So within a few months of opening, art became the obvious step for us. We, I, it was it, the actual full name is called uh, Frame of Mind: The Art of Eyewear. So from the very beginning, the inception of it, it's always been art based. Um, the old location, if many of you have probably been to my old location, it's kind of a it's a loft based system where all of the retail was on the ground floor, but we had an entire second floor open air above right. us. Yeah. So we had a lot of wall space that I couldn't use for eyewear. Like, what are you going to do with it? Well, let's do art. So it started, you know, credit, credit being given. Um, Alicia Leak is the artist that helped me get off I the know ground. Alicia well. Yeah, I know she's, Alicia, yeah. We love Alicia. She actually... I was lucky enough to have met, met her and knew her, uh, about, I guess, about a year before we actually opened up. So I, I already had a really good relationship with her. And just about six months in, decided we got to do this. We got to do art shows. And so I went to Alicia, asked Alicia if she would consider doing an art show so that we could start drawing a crowd. And that basically is where everything started. Because up until that point, my interaction with the art world was through eyewear. So that was my next question. Is like, Alicia was the only artist that you had any connection that to? That was the only artist that I had any like personal, like as a friend. And so you were just going, hey, let's get together and have an opening show. Yes. And that's yeah. it. When, how, obviously, so was it a success, that first show? Was that why, how it snowballed into what it was? Or did you say, well, it wasn't a success or we need to do something different? How did that How does that I expect to get 200 people showing up, the, you know, the first time. So, you know, I, 
it was, it was, it was not a, I mean, obviously the first time you do something, it's not going to be quote unquote successful, but we got 15 to 20 people in the door, which I don't know whether that's good or bad, but we were an unknown place on Main Street, Street that was still, was still was nothing going still on. Still was nothing going on. Was we Cowboys were, the restaurant next door still? Was we, that, this was, was back the, when it was. This was back before even Gotham Bagel was there. This okay. was this was when. Um, oh Lord, Rising High, Rising High was still there. That's okay. uh, Kirkman Finley's right. uh, bread company. He had a little restaurant there called Rising High. Um, so yeah, we were we were way back in the rising high days. We were between rising high and uh, free times. Okay. And there's a funny funny odd story about that. I'll say real quickly. Um, the name frame of mind, as ingenious as it is, I went round and round and round and round and round and round in circles for a couple of months, trying to come up with a name. Just trying to come up with a name. Trying to you know try this, try that. I picked up a copy of Free Times one day, and on the front was a picture of Kirkman Finley and the title, A New Frame of Mind. And I, oh, okay, so I read the article. A New Frame of Mind or Frame of Mind was never said again anywhere in the article. It was only on the front cover and said A New Frame of Mind with Kirkman Finley on it. Frame of mind stuck for whatever reason. It just it just stuck. And I, I fell in love with it. it and I had to have it. That predated the location. I didn't know anything about rising high. I didn't even really realize that free times is where it was at. So it's kind of humorous that you we end ended up, up literally next to Kirkman Finley's restaurant, four or five doors down from the free times where the name came from a Free Times article about Kirkman That's Finley. funny. That's so a good story. Like, <laughs> that's a great story. Like, I mean, that's serendipity, too. You oh, know yeah, I mean? totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so when did, uh, so you had Alicia's show. Right. Did you, you're like, let's do one next month. It was that kind of the thing. So, yeah, basically it was like, all right, how are we going to do this? So, you, you know, you, you, you realize if you're going to do anything that's going to be successful, you got to do it repeatedly. you got to work on it. you got to get it out there, you know blah, blah, blah. You can't do it one time. If you're going to do it, you got to commit to six times or a year or whatever. So I quickly said, well, let's do a monthly, we're going to do a monthly installment. So I actually went to Alicia and I said, do me a favor. Can you give me a list of names of people, of artists that you know and love that you think would be interested in doing this setup? And she gave me a list. Um, And I went and reached out to a number of those people, and almost all of them said yes. So uh, between Alicia and her list, I got the first six months right there. And we did a monthly turnover basis. By the end of the first six months, I had met enough artists, gone out into the art community and other shows, met enough artists through there that I was able to start having conversations with artists and start bringing them in on my choice instead of relying on somebody else to suggest people. So Alicia gave so you became me the, your own curator. I became my own curator at that point. So Alicia kind of gave me the first five to six months of the process, and then I took it from there. Um, you know, we changed. There's some different, you know, different names. It's like all of it had to get worked out on different levels. You know, we 
when we started it, it was just simply, it was just an art show. Um, we were trying to get the art shows a name. You know, you're going to brand it at some point. I saw an opportunity to actually work with uh, a local magazine, a local art magazine. I reached out to the art magazine. Um, they loved the idea. We joined for about three months. So we actually did our art shows for about six months. And then we did three months worth, maybe four months worth of a, a named or a branded show. And the idea was, I'll, I'll put your name on our show. And in return, any of the artists that I bring in, you write up in your magazine. So you're not responsible for the show. You don't have to put any money out on it, anything like that. But, but I need you to write about, the work. write about the work that we're agreed to. Everything was fine. Unfortunately, the timing of that whole situation, which I didn't know, and I don't think the owner of that magazine was really aware of it, it was a bad financial kind of timing in, in the magazine's life. So that only lasted about four to five months. At that point, I took it and said, hell with it we're <laughs> i'm just gonna make it out it's so it's not gonna be the fom series so we just i just named it after the frame of mind and, and, and fom series began at that point i will say um we also when we started we actually started doing the third thursday of every month is when we actually started okay and how we got to first thursday was i started in april when you get to Thanksgiving, run into problems. Right. So Thanksgiving in December, you're going to run into issues. So when we got to that first Thanksgiving, I was like, so we shifted to a first Thursday at that point, and then you just took off. Right? It took yeah. off. When did the city of Columbia start getting involved and start to realize, hey, this is something that's that's good. Let's take advantage of it. Or did they? Or did you um, have to go to them? So. <laughs> Now we start getting into the... All right, all right. Well, I'm careful. I tread, I tread lightly, my friend. I tread lightly. Um, so at a certain point... at some point, point it, had, it, took, it, took, it took a life uh, it took it on its own life. It did. It did. And it... And it, it, it politics is a, a funny thing. You find politics in many places that you wouldn't expect politics to be. Um, you know, me opening a business on Main Street. There's politics involved in that. I wasn't political. I didn't know about any politics. I didn't run in the city, you know, in, in the political realms. I, I had a dream. I had a passion. I had an idea. And I found the place that I wanted that dream and that passion and that idea to grow in. And that was Main Street. But I didn't go through the quote-unquote normal channels. I just appeared. So... There were, Do you think you flew under the radar? I totally sense? flew under the radar. Yeah, like people, like we just opened, and there were people that had no clue that we were going to open, had no clue who who we were, so we had no relationship with certain people that were already involved with Main Street. So, so do you think you pissed some people off off the bat because of that, um, or you were just being watched? I don't think I pissed people off. I think. It surprised and frightened people because they didn't know who we were. And, you know, <laughs> my nature, I put my head down and go. Uh, it's just, you know, I mean, there's a certain point where you have to make a decision to jump off the cliff or turn around and walk away. You know, 
I mean, it's just, yeah. that's just how it is. So I made the decision to jump off the cliff when I opened the store. Um, and I was bound and determined to make it happen and work whatever way I had to do that. Art became a part of that. Events became a part of that. That's how I was going to drive it forward. What happened, even from the beginning, I didn't fully understand what exactly it was that I had started. It took me, after the first six months, I started to see something. Once we hit the first year, so the following April, I realized what we had. And it was a, it was a situation where, as a business owner, private business owner, if I could get the business on the right of me and the business on the left of me to join in. So, hey, I'm going to do this thing on the first Thursday of the month. If you can put an artist in there, if you can put somebody reading poetry, if you can put somebody playing acoustic guitar, whatever it is, if you can do that on either side of us, that gives us three different people, three different stores and there's synergy that happens there. So if I get 50 it's people also to show creates up, foot traffic. it creates foot traffic. In, but a, if I, in a cyclical way. And very much. Again, if I have 50 people that show up for me, you have 50 people that show up for that person. You've got 150 people that show up. 50 are mine, but there's 100 that I'm going to get to to rotate through other than the fit. So, you know, it's logical. A year in, we started to draw... 100, 150, 200 people. We started having people coming to that space, coming down there, and we had businesses that were trying to get involved on either side of us. That's where you really begin to realize, okay, this isn't just something that's going to develop my business. This is something that can help develop Main Street as a whole. So, you know, it became a project at that point for me to move forward, you know, um, the city never really reached out to me. Um, there are some other powers that be in the Main Street area that I contacted, and it was a very kind of kid glove type relationship. You know, maybe I was the hot potato. I don't know. Um, I was trying to make things happen. I was trying to push, and the people that I was talking to weren't really sure what to do with me. I guess is the best way to say it. So we got to a point about a year. Why? Because year, they didn't want to give you money. They didn't want to endorse it. They didn't. No, want to get I think. Um, are they just weary of it? Scared? Whatever. I I think they were weary of it. I also think that again, going back to what I said a, a couple minutes ago, it's one of those situations where I don't think that they they didn't know who it was. They didn't know what my long-term goals were. They didn't understand how I processed and how what what how, how my process was going to be. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm six foot five. Yeah, I you're not you're, you're, a, you're not a, you're not a hard target to miss for sure. So I, I you know, I, I go round and round over this. You know, I don't, I don't, I think sometimes I come off a little, a little loud or a little brash when I'm, a, certainly I'm not trying to come off loud or brash. I just, you're just I'm, big. I'm, I'm big. I and, know, and, I get that. You, you get it. I you get know? it. I and get when it. you get passionate about things, you know, I got enough Midwestern in me that I speak with my hands. Yeah, and you got, and you got big lungs and you're <laughs> going to say loud, big so, mouth. I mean, I get it. Absolutely. <laughs> 
So I think that kind of interplays in with what we're talking about. You know, here's this guy that nobody knew about, and he's, you know, he's very passionate about what he does and who he is. And, you know, and I wasn't, I was somebody that I had, I had put myself on the line to do this, and I wasn't going to line up with somebody saying, hold your horses. No, you know, slow your roll. We got another two to three years to figure that, uh-huh, that's, I had a business that had to survive. I had to feed. You know, exactly. So I'm doing something to make my business survive. And, the, and, it, and it very quickly ballooned into something that actually could make other businesses survive or even attract other businesses. So, you know, it, it was a difficult situation. We, we went round and round and round the entire time I was on Main Street. Who's involved? Who's not involved? Who's going to help? Who's not going to help? Many times I tried to just give the whole thing up. People wouldn't take it because I didn't feel like it was necessarily one single individual's place to try and run a, a, an entire street-long event when I was a, a private individual. I just, you know, I had to question myself on that. But the people that I was asking to take it just, well, you know, they were just, no, 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 you're fine. You're doing, you're doing fine. Just keep it up, you know. So again, once you do that, kind when you of said stuff, you tried to give it away, that it just, was it because it was just too? It just was like turning turning this monster or this thing. Well, I will say the the tail end of my time running it, um, I had an assistant at that point. I had somebody that had that I had had come on board and, and was helping me both in the business, but helping run first Thursday. And I literally put twenty hours a week plus, and this assistant put 20 hours a week plus. So between the two of us, it was a 40-hour-a-week job just in branding, marketing, getting the, all of the stuff put together, getting the website together, the Facebook posts, all the social media, getting all of the businesses. It's like herding cats. I know that you've been involved in the art industry enough that, like, Everybody lot, say dealing with artists is like herding cats. Well, dealing with small businesses, a large group of small businesses is like herding cats. Trying to, you know, you can, you can put the, the food bowl in front of them and they won't eat from it until you turn around and walk away. Then they'll right. come over and eat. So it's that kind of situation where you're constantly, so it was a 40 hour a week commitment. That's a huge commitment yeah, when, you're when you're trying to run your own, trying business, to run your own business and, and build have a your life business. Other, otherwise. Uh, and that's, you know, it's really interesting when you get to the to the end of the process. And I know I'm jumping a little bit, but I'll say this quickly and then we can go back. When you get to the end of my time on Main Street, there was a moment where it was in the spring of the of the last year that we were there. We were standing out front in the middle of a first Thursday and this assistant and I were standing there talking to each other and my assistant said you know we really honestly need to be moving up and down the street because we had grown it at that point we had got it to six blocks long we literally were from the state house all the way down to city hall like we included all of those blocks there were a lot of moving pieces but because I had a business I had to run my business during Thursday. So I wasn't really able to be a presence all up and down the street to make sure that everybody was being taken care of and 
so on and so and forth. And you did miss, and you were missing out. You were missing out. And exactly. It's, if if I can be, you know, on the fourteen hundred block or the thirteen hundred block and see what's missing down there, or talk to the business and find out how people are getting to them or not getting to them, then I could go in and all right. Here's how we need to craft this to get people there. And, but I couldn't do that because I was locked into my business. It's my business. Right. It's, it's what. It's what you why you started the bills, yeah. right? So there was a moment where we were standing on the street and we're talking about we need to be up and down the street, need to be up and down the street. And my assistant looked at me and, and it was, you know, it was a purely benign statement. It was an extremely stream of thought and it was extremely right and on time. But my assistant looked at me and said, okay, we need to, uh, we need to hire somebody that will take care of the shop. We need to bring somebody on that will take care of the shop on first Thursdays. So that allows us to go up and down the street. And I, I, I just stopped and looked at her and I said, what did you just say? We need to hire somebody. And I was like, this is the moment where I know it's gone too far. Why? Because I don't get paid to do anything I'm doing on the street. I see. And I have to pay somebody to I watch see. my business so you can just so that I can go be free going up and down the street. Okay. So that realization happened the spring of the last year that we were on the street. Of course it didn't. That was like an April or a May and I, and it was like, okay, now what do you do? And we found out in September that our business, our building was being sold and we had to make a decision on what we wanted to do with it and we got out in January. You know, we got a year in and you, you begin to see just how much of an impact that this can, can have on the street. It was, well, from, you know, from my perspective, so I moved back to Columbia in 2009 from right. New York. Right. Um, and so by the time this is happening, the end of, it, had, it was huge. Right. You know, I mean, really, right. it, was, it was, you know, I think when the Dorothy Project opened, it was um, that one week, that one Thursday, of course, the weather was great in May. It was right. massive. Right. Right. We had already, we had gotten it. Of course, your two biggest, the two biggest events that we had every year, two biggest months was, well, well three, April and May. April was huge. May was huge. And then uh, December. But we worked hard to get December because, again, you know, you had, you had your divine night out. You had your, you know, your uh, Vista Art Lights. Lights yeah. So, you know, Main Street, for me, you know, that was one of the primary things. Mingle and Jingle on Main. Let's make this happen. And, you know, I, I had visions on what to do with Mingle and Jingle on Main, how to make that a very special thing. And, you know, those visions never truly came to fruition. Again, those are even bigger than just running an event. And you have to sign on. You have to get more people to sign on. And it was a difficult situation to get the number of people to get signed on that you needed and to get financing. You know, it was a grassroots effort by me and a couple of other people that, that came on board to help. Um, we had some different people in the arts community that came on board to, to help provide I will say this, and I will say this till the day I die, whether we, you know, where, wherever we are with free times nowadays, I can tell you that First Thursdays would not be what First Thursdays is without free times. Uh, Dan Cook and free times 
They got it. They understood it. They didn't even ask a lot of questions. They just got it. They understood it. And anything I needed as far as getting something out on a monthly basis, no questions asked. They were fantastic. Um, so free times was a very large part of getting it built up to where it got built up to. Um, unfortunately, Dan Cook's not there anymore. You know, it's I mean, sold, th- yeah. things, yeah, things, things have been changed. sold, things have changed. And it, it is, you know, it's moving along and it's got some pretty good stuff that it's doing today. It's just different than it different, was. Yeah back in the day. So I have to give them shout outs. But, you know, we had people that would come on board like a free time who just naturally stepped in and, and helped it, helped it grow. They picked up wherever it needed to go. You know, a lot of businesses that started to get into it, they understood it, they got in, you know, and they, they helped make sure they were doing something to make sure that it was growing, gave us more volume. Um, but it gets to a point. Well, especially if you're working that hard on it and you're not getting anything financially from it. I mean, obviously the business was doing well enough. Um, it was existing. It was existing well <laughs> enough, I guess. Right, right. But you weren't, obviously, it wasn't, you weren't being compensated, compensated for the amount of effort that you were putting in. I wasn't. And um, that takes its toll no matter what you do and what any endeavor. Totally. People started asking me, well, what about the city? Well, <laughs> I have a philosophy, (laughs) and this philosophy started relatively early. Um, I'm sure some people aren't going to be happy about this philosophy, but I think most of the artists will agree and understand. When the conversations of, well, what about the city? The city can help you with some of this. My first side to that was, no, absolutely not. Um. My philosophy was a city has a city government has no place being involved in a local art scene. Zero. Um, it's controversial. Some people don't like to hear me say that. You know, that philosophy was maybe seven years ago, eight years ago. I still have a relatively similar philosophy to that to this day. It's it's changed a little bit, but for me. Anytime a, a, a government entity gets involved with art, it becomes relatively dangerous. Meaning, why? Because they just complain, screw it up? Well, or they're going to uh, I don't know, take advantage? Or, a, or gover- a government entity is designed to do something in a specific way for a specific reason. Um, that isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily coincide with what art is supposed to do. This isn't a slam on a local government. This is no, a realization, it's, it's, you know. Yeah, the uh, a local government has to answer to its constituency. It has to answer to everybody that pays taxes, that pays taxes that's involved with it. Um, an art scene doesn't. To me, an art scene is designed to inspire, push, cajole, lead, however you want to say it, lift up the society in which or the community in which it resides. Um, mixing government and an art community is dangerous because once a government has a monetary stake in an art scene or an art movement, they by very nature have the ability to dictate that art scene or that art movement. And that is where I find things to be very 
difficult. Because it doesn't happen naturally, and that's ultimately what art does. It happens naturally. That exactly. Changes whatever, yeah. what it, it does whatever it needs to do to move forward. It has to have the anonymity or the, or the freedom to be able to say things that at times may be controversial or, or may be outside the norm that a government entity a lot of times is not going to be comfortable or will not allow, not because of the people that work for the government don't agree with it or don't appreciate it, but because there are people in the community that don't like it. And then they go to the government entity and say, you're paying for this? I think not. And then the government entity gets to come to whoever's running this and they go, okay, so you're not doing X, Y, or Z or you're not going to get funding anymore. So my philosophy at the beginning was nothing against any city government, but the reality is is the moment I start taking money from a city government is the moment that city government has a stake in what we do and and therefore can start dictating what you do. So Mm. I actually was courted by the city government for two years. Um, We have money. We have money. We will give you money. Come apply for it. What you're doing is tailor-made for our program. We will give you money for it. But I openly said no, because I did not want to get involved in that. Because they would tie your hands. They they could very well tie my hands. Carrying an event that size, as long as I did, is a huge weight. So there's a certain point where after being courted, badgered, asked enough times, Finally, just look at it and go, this is freaking ridiculous. If they're going to give me money. So I looked into it and said, all right, fine. If they want to give us money from the H tax, they were asking us to please apply for the, please apply for H tax. Please, for the love of God, apply for H tax. So we applied for H tax. Um, and we got a couple thousand dollars, I think, the first year that went basically into marketing. I don't think we ever got, I can't remember off the top of my head, I don't think we ever got more than about five or $6,000 a year. For the whole thing. For the, for the whole thing. So, and none of that money is designed to go to any one person to pay them for their time. And I never got that, took that money for that reason. Right. That money is designed to go into advertising. It's designed to go into uh, paying some of the expenses like, like the, the police officers that you have to have on hand and right. that kind of stuff. So, we did eventually get the city involved in it. I believe they're still involved from the H tax end of things. So, yeah. um, but you know, I had to, I had to, I had to come to terms with how much <laughs> how much money do you take from an entity versus how much do you yeah. say do they have? And indeed, we had a problem at one point, which kind of bore out you know what I was saying. Um, we had some issues with some of the people. Once it grew to a certain extent. We had issues with a couple of businesses on the street that, for whatever reason, didn't like the fact that once a month we were taking a couple of parking spots. And they went to the city and threw a high holy hissy fit, screamed and loud, yeah, stomped their feet. And the city came to me and said, okay, you're done. You're not shutting the streets down ever again. Excuse me? (laughs) What? (laughs) You know. I, I, don't, I, I speak louder. I don't, <laughs> wow, really? That guy, yeah, they came in and said, you know, and, and we were shutting the streets down like we were literally shutting streets down once a quarter. So four times a year we were shutting the streets down 
but we were taking parking spots for specific things pretty much every month. Well, they came to us and said, well, you're not shutting the streets down anymore. Okay. And so there was a whole Strike process one. of trying to, yeah, and how to, you know, what's, all right, what's going on here? And of course, you know, your communication and how all that works out becomes a challenge. And it, and it goes back to reinforce exactly what I said. Now, they weren't fussing at us because of what we were doing on the street. We were, they were telling us what we could do based off of somebody Somebody's else complaint. screaming and hollering and complaining about it. And, it, you know, it's again, that's my whole point, though, is right. all it takes that's is right. one, one person to punch the right button or stick the right thorn in the right person's side, and suddenly what you're trying to accomplish can get curtailed real quickly. Real fast. And it can, so, yeah, it, yeah, it can all fall apart. Absolutely. So, you know, it's a lesson learned, and, you know, we... You know, it's still going today. I, uh, you know, I, again, it's completely changed. It's completely morphed into something different. But, you know, I, I used to be angry over that. But honestly, you know, is anything built to last forever? No. I, you know, things are always going to change. Um, I'm just, in a way, glad that it's still going. You know, it's uh, 10 years now, I believe. Yeah, it's, I think it, this... This December should be the tenth year for our. Is it, was it 2010 or 2009? Well, I think 2010 was the first year that we pushed, quote unquote, mingle and jingle on Main for De- for December. So the big December first Thursday this year will be the ten year. So hopefully, uh, whoever is is running first Thursdays will hear this podcast. <laughs> And, make, and they'll hear what I just said and do a 10-year anniversary because I it was 10 years ago that we were pushing to, to make, my goal was to make Mingle Jingle on Main like the preeminent Christmas like, event. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's the heart of your city. It's your main street of your city. Yeah. You know, let's shut this thing down. Let's do it. Let's, let's throw this as, as, as hard a Christmas party as we can throw. Let's do it. So... You know, maybe, maybe I'm throwing the challenge down to the maybe to, man to that'd Main be awesome. Street, the yeah. Main Street District yeah. and City of Columbia to see if they can make that happen. But you know, <laughs> so all right, so we'll, we'll we'll get back to where we left off a minute ago. So yeah. that 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 <laughs> spring, you were like, all right, I gotta, I got it. There's that. That's it. I, I gotta, I gotta figure something else out. So, you know, again, this is a is a it's it's a it's a complicated tale of. Personal, professional, how do you do business? How do you do art? Um, we had made it seven years at that point. Uh, as a business, we were coming up on our seventh year. Um, you know, and you're trying to figure out, you know, how was the business doing? Well, the business was alive. You know, we were surviving. Um, we were not thriving. But we were surviving. It, it was the concept, again, of you're doing something. You're trying to fill a hole in a market. You're, you, you, you know, again, as I said earlier, South Carolina is kind of like a black hole within the optical industry. And so you're trying to provide that bright light, you know, to, 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 to get people to see what it is that you're doing and buy into it and love it, and, and therefore it bleeds out to changing the way they see themselves, the way they see their city. And, you know, it was a struggle. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't that easy. It was, you know, people just weren't 
biting the way that I needed them to bite to be able to thrive. So we run into that moment with First Thursday, where I'm now having to step back and go, okay, so what am I doing here? (laughs) You know, I've built an event that has helped rebuild a street, but in the same sense, my business isn't thriving. A lot of my attention, you know, 20, 30 hours a week is going into running this event, branding this event, marketing this event, you know, pushing this event to the next level. Where do we take it? And ultimately, it's not doing what you wanted it to do. And 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 it's not, you know, a lot of new businesses are coming in and jumping in, and which is great, which is the way we we designed it. We we designed the, the way First Thursday originally was designed. I I I tell people all the time it was a very grassroots, and it's what we call a skeleton based system. I provided the skeleton, and I relied upon everybody else on the street to add meat to it, to fill it out with muscles and skin and all of that. So we basically provided the date, the name, the brand, the website, all the marketing. You know, all of the PR stuff, that all came out of my shop. But then we relied upon the rest of the businesses to fill it out, to give it volume, right. to give it reasons for people. It was a structure set in place so that it made it very, very easy for the individual businesses on Main Street to go, oh, first Thursday, I'm going to do, I'm a restaurant, I'll give 10% off appetizers. Or I'll give a signature drink. You know, if I'm a if I'm, if I'm a retail store, I can give ten percent off. You know, a certain type of article or whatever. Or we're going to put an artist in here and put art on the walls of this area, and we're going to do an art exhibit. It was designed to make it as easy as easy as possible for the for the local businesses to get involved. And then all you had to do was tell me what it was you were doing, and we would handle it from there. So. Again, as we said earlier, that became a full-time job, basically. So you're you're building a a street, you're watching the street build, you're watching new people jump in, you're seeing a total different attitude because once we got to year six and year seven, you had new businesses opening, new people coming in that were... Let me make a real quick statement on this. From this point forward, a lot of this is going to be based... A lot of what I'm going to say is going to be based off of a learning process. So you learn, as we all do. Um, There was a learning curve with this. You realize that you create a product, you create a brand, you create an entity, you make it what amounts to a free market, and your brain says, oh, people are going to jump on board, and they're going to be excited, and they're going to help you out with it. But that's not what happened. Most people took it for what it was. It was a free market event. There it is. Now, I can do whatever I want. I'm not responsible for it. That's fine. I mean, I, I didn't ask anybody to be responsible for it. I assumed, because of who I am, that if there's something that I love and that I want to be a part of, I'm going to find out how I can make that thing move forward. What began to happen is there were a lot of businesses that moved onto the street that started to do stuff on the first Thursdays, never ever came and talked to me. They never said pea turkey to me. It was taken for granted. And again, I'm not mad about that. I understand now as a learning process why it happened. 
But the event itself started to be taken for granted. The event's always going to be there. It's always got a structure. It's always got somebody running it. And all I have to do is show up on a first Thursday and do whatever I'm going to do, and I can make my money off of it and increase my business and boost and all this kind of stuff, and that's all that matters. Nobody, once we reach a certain point, a lot of, I won't say nobody, but a lot of the new businesses that were coming in were excited about First Thursday but never had any communication or gave anything to help that thing move forward. Thing move forward. So again, so in a way, it kind of ate itself. It kind of ate itself. You had new people coming in that didn't know why it was started. How were they going to? Again, this is not an anger. This is about learning. Um, how are they going to? Unless they took the time to go ask the people and have the conversations, how were they ever going to know? We had businesses that were opening because they saw how busy First Thursdays were. They saw how many people were moving on the street, were coming up and down the street. They were excited about, this is a great place to open our business. It's exactly why we were doing First Thursday. But lost in that, is what people's commitment to helping that move forward is. Everybody took it for granted. Nobody took responsibility for it. Everybody just was like, this is what we do. This is what we do. We have first Friday or first Thursdays. This is what we do. Again, there's no anger in that. It's just a matter of this is, this is human. This is what humans do. So... You get to the end of the, you get to that seven year mark and you're lifting a pretty heavy weight. Your physical business isn't really going anywhere. And your, your, your next step is, is well, what are we going to do? Because we've reached a point where we have to, we have to pay somebody to be in our business while I do something for free, while I help try and run this, this big, you know, six-block-long entity, how, you know, what does that mean for my personal business? What, what does that ultimately mean for my personal life? Like, where does this go? So we, you know, we got into the summer, and, and I'm sitting there going, okay, what are we going to do? And then thoughts started to come up, I have to start stepping back because I can't continue to give as much as I'm giving to First Thursday and, and ultimately ignoring my, my business. Yeah. And you weren't getting a return on I, I, I wasn't getting a return. And there was some frustration and some aggravation, but I didn't confess that to anybody. It was just, again, it was a part of learning the curve. It's like people are, we created something that people are excited about. And so the people that are moving here with their business are so excited that they're taking advantage of what we created, which is exactly why we created it was for that to happen. We just assumed that people would naturally jump on board to help carry the weight of it. And people weren't doing that. So in the midst of that, the people that we were leasing our space from decided that they needed to move on from that location, um, get their return back on their investment. And so they came to us and said, we're selling the location. You could buy it, you know, but be aware, 
there's a for sale sign going up on it, and it's going to be sold within the next you know six months or whatever. Wow. So I looked put at it and was like, yeah, put me on the gun. I mean, and I again, I'm not mad about it. They had to do what they had to do. This was an investment. I totally don't have a problem with that. Um, but we had to step back, and take a look at, all right, what does this mean? Well, <laughs> I. <laughs> I wasn't going to have to try and find a place within 30 days. I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to allow myself to be put in a position where somebody was going to say, by the way, we just sold it. You got 30 days to get out, 60 days to get out. And then I was going to have to scramble to find a location to move all my stuff out of. To go. So I was like, all right, if you're going to come to me and tell me that you're going to sell it, it could be sold in 30 days, six months, two and a half years. I don't know. But I'm going to be proactive about this. I can't. I can't wait until you come to me to say we sold. It's right. way too dangerous because, yeah. like, you know, at that point we were we were on a month to month lease with our landlords, and they were not going to sign a lease with us because they were selling. I was happy being on a month to month. They were happy being on a month to month. But that meant we had no guarantee. So whoever they sold it to could have very easily said, "Hey, Guess we're going to go in this direction. We need you out." Blah blah blah. Well, there would have been no way I could have found a location that would have fit for me, and we could have gotten everything packed up and moved within that time period. So it was just a decision of moving, being proactive, and, and looking at what we were doing, and we began to look up and down Main Street, and honestly, I've said this in the past, we did our job too well. At that point, there was very little that was left, and, and the stuff was. that was left was too expensive. Yeah. So the next lesson that you learn comes in. The very thing that I said at the very beginning, and I didn't say this yet, so here it is, first time tonight. Um, when we created First Thursday, when First Thursday became a reality, it, it took us to go backtrack a tiny bit on that. It took us about a year. And after we got to about a year, we realized that this was actually, the event was actually growing into something that could be a building block for the street. And we were doing it on the first Thursday. And I had people coming to me going, why don't you just brand the whole event? Instead of it being a bunch of separate little events like your FOM series, brand the whole event. So we, we went round and round and round. Fine, we'll call it first Thursdays. So from about a year, year and a half on, that's when it was officially called first Thursdays. And we pushed on the first, that was the official branding and how that stuff got going. So, coming back to the end, we're sitting here looking at it going, well, gosh, we did our job too well. Because <laughs> where we were, you know, six years ago, you know, there were a lot of empty storefronts, a lot of empty buildings. Now there's virtually no empty storefronts, and whatever's left is expensive. And it's starting to get to the point where corporations are going to have to... buildings, yeah. And exactly. Gonna, and that's what's happening. And that's what's happening. And... We had made the decision when we started pushing First Thursday that we had started it with art. And we were always going to have it be art. First Thursday was designed to be an art-based event. Because I had had it said a million times. I had had the, the example put in my face. I had read about it. I had seen it all over the place. That too many times, arts move into a place because it's cheap. And very soon, once the artists get established, people start coming in to see the arts and the art studios and that kind of stuff. 
what follows is a few exploratory early adopter small businesses, which gives it more value, more volume, more power, and then you start getting some less adventurous businesses coming in, start getting food, and then eventually, as we all know, corporations move in or the big developers move in and all of the artists move out. So my whole goal with this was to start an event, which we did, that was based on art. That was the whole point. First Thursday was going to be based on art. We were not going to lose art. We were going to make sure that we were going to use art to build the street, but we were never going to lose that art presence because we couldn't succumb. We were going to try and prove the, the model wrong. To get to the end of my time there, and I kind of felt like the joke was on me. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you know? I mean, I mean, even uh, now, it's even... It's, there's no art on, on there's very there's, well there isn't I mean there's an there's art no. museum and, uh, right. and then there's the city gallery around on uh, uh, not Gervais on Taylor Street um, that's it's the art center that's, the yeah the art center that's, that's left and you know when I moved uh, I carried some guilt for a while because the very thing that I said I wasn't going to allow it to happen. It's the very thing that I did. Uh, I felt like I had inadvertently, I didn't do it on purpose, I had inadvertently used art to build a community. And then all of those people got pushed off the street. And I carried a certain amount of guilt because I kept telling people, this is always about art. We're going we're gonna to bend that model. We're going to show that we can build an art-based event and have a certain presence of art here and not get chased off the street. We're going to work. We're going to keep it that way. And it didn't work that way. Yeah, I don't know if it does, no. though, man. I think, I think, I think it's I a... I don't think it does. I, <laughs> I, I think it's a gallant idea. That's interesting that you said. I, I didn't know that was, you know, from, from an outsider's perspective. But I don't... I'm asking, I still ask that same question. How can you subvert that model? Well, flashing forward to where we're just for a brief second on what we're trying to do in our new endeavors, and we'll get to that on a larger, I know we'll get to a larger, yeah. but to address that issue, uh, from my experience of the last 12 plus years being involved in small business, rebuilding communities, and art communities, the conclusion that I've come to, or me and my partner have come to, is that we've realized you're never going to break that model. Okay. Because this is, this is a, it, it's a, I'm going to say a word that people absolutely hate. Some people are like foam at the mouth when they hear this word. But it's a part of capitalism. If you stop and look at the way the system works, the system works the people that, the artists generally have very little money. So they got to go to a place that has, that doesn't cost them anything. So that generally is a warehouse district or the most rundown part of town. They move into that area because it's, it's the Jeez. cheapest that they can find. Right. You know, they're going to move in there. Followed by that is going to be the people that love art, that want to support the artists, followed by small base, the whole thing I've already said. But we're, we're, we all say that this is a bad system, and, and in a way it is. 
But we're not looking at it from a realistic standpoint. This is what we've learned, and this is what we're trying to implement into part of our business as we move forward. We, we all, including me, I did it, we all want to fight for our territory. We all go, well, we were here first. And there are people, there are people in, in, in our community, and there are people in, in every community around the United States and probably beyond, but there are people in our community that believe if we can just buy our own land, we can control it. It's always ours. And the system of capitalism can never affect us. But I will counter that. If you buy a piece of land for $40,000, first of all, as an artist, that's a very difficult thing. But say you can't. You buy a piece of land for $40,000. You go in there and you do your thing. And you get a bunch of like-minded people to surround you. You go in, they go in and do their things. The very same process happens. Yeah, the, the, the 40000 becomes worse. It's worth more now. Bing! And then somebody else wants and, to buy it. And, and somebody else wants to buy it. And you as an yeah. artist, if you sunk $40,000 into it. And all of a sudden it, you can make triple And like suddenly that? somebody comes in and says, I'll buy, I'll buy this piece of land for 150000 Most artists, like any normal human being, is going to sell that piece of land. To and place. guess what happens? The same cycle is happening over and over and over again. So what, what we're trying to implement and to where we're moving forward is trying, we want to start having conversations with cities, with city governments, and with individual, with artists. Understand where your value is. Your value was always at the front end of this process. It's never in the back end. But we all fight for the back end for whatever reason. We all think we were here first. You're using us. But our value is on the front end. We're the people who always find the spaces that need to be redeveloped. So, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the pathfinders. We're the ones that the developers follow us. So what we have to do as artists and, 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 and people who promote arts and do events and this kind of stuff is, is we have to figure out, and, th- and this is a part of the conversation. I'm not going to say I have all of the answers on this. How do we leverage our value, which is at the front end of the process, not at the back. So we are going to take and start having conversations with our municipalities, both in Ohio, and and we're going to start having them down here as well. But we want to start being the conversation makers. We want to get to that point where we're talking to people going, okay, you're a municipality. You have an area that needs to be revitalized. You already know art works. You've seen this model for the last 20, 25 years. You're in a position where you need art to move into this area. What are we going to do to make it worth the artist's time? Not impinge upon that natural cycle, but what are we going to do to make it worth their time? Because and giving them opportunity. Giving them opportunities. We can't, we can't go, oh, well, we're going to have them there within five years. We'll boot them out of the way and have our big businesses move in. That's fine. That's a model. We know that model works. We know that's what's going to happen. We can't change it. We already know we can't change it. But we can think differently about the process. As a government entity, as an artist community, our value lies in the first few years of that process. So how do we change that to where our artists, we as artists, or a government can go, you know what? Those artists are a part of our community. 
instead of them struggling their rear ends off for the first three to four years, how do we subsidize that? Or how do we give them some way of, of getting a value back out of that so that at the end of the five years, they can go to the next area that needs development? How do we as artists... Continue the process in a cyclical exactly. way that's like... A how do we as artists... It's a growth model. It's, it's all a growth model. We, we don't realize that our value is the pathfinder. We undersell that. And mainly because we're all trying to trying figure to out survive. how to pay your bills. Yeah, right, you're just right. trying to survive. So you're trying Absolutely. to survive. Yeah. So, but, but everybody else is naturally following in wherever the artists well, yeah, go. You're right, because the people with money are watching and waiting. Right. Watching. It's like fishing. We're in the bait. So why not? And again, this is, a, this is an open conversation. How do we do it? I don't know. It's, it's a model that, as far as I know, has never been done before. So um, well, this is a perfect opportunity. So you guys moved to State Street. Correct. And you, and you, were you conscious of this model? Like, were you, you said, okay, we did this at first Thursday. Let's do this here, but we're going to change it and make it different. Was it that conscious or it became another whole learning process and then became now whole, you're at where you're at? It became a whole other learning process. The, 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 the State Street, uh, you know, that whole process of where are we going? How are we, you know, how is this going to end up? You know, obviously, we tried to stay on Maine. That's where I had invested seven years. We should stay on Maine. That wasn't going to work financially. Um, I had basically gotten myself to a point to where I was like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to back out of the retail side of things. I'm not going to close it completely, but I want to do more arts, more events. I want to go. I, I've put a lot of myself into that over the last six years, five years. I want to go that direction. I want to start. So we started looking for some alternative spaces and we almost signed a lease on a warehouse space down by the stadium. Oh. So we were, we were very close to signing a lease there when a friend of mine said, hey, by the way, there's this space over on State Street. Let's go over and take a look at it because I think it might be what you're looking for. Well, I had to go through a process it's a very scary thing when you've done something for seven years. You, you pushed, you, you directed yourself in a certain way to suddenly, at the end of seven years, go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pivot. And I'm, I'm going to shift and I'm going to go away from an established area that I have fought hard for and I'm going to actually do something completely different. I'm going to go more event and art-based. It took me a couple of weeks, three, four weeks, to get myself talked into that headspace. <laughs> and then we go over to see this space on State Street. <laughs> and I walked in the door and I was like, eh, it's over with. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing it was, I was, it was where I you're going to knew, I knew the moment I saw it, I was like, I'm in trouble. You know, I, just, I worked three to four weeks to be okay. Are you, is this what you want to do, not want to do? And I walked in that space on State Street and I was like, I'm in trouble. Because that space was infinitely better than the space that we had on Main Street. It was a more expensive space, but it was a larger space. So even though I was paying more per month than I was on Main Street, I was getting, I basically doubled my space, usable space from what I had on Main Street. So I went up a couple hundred dollars a month but I doubled the amount of usable space. So I was like, okay, we'll make this go. 
it gave me a space that I could do some events in um, better than what I had on Main Street. So when we moved to State Street, the split from Maine and the split from First Thursday, it got a, it got a little interesting because, again, how do, you, how do you let go of something that you birthed? How do you let go of something that you created, that you, that you built from the ground up? Even if you knew that you were worn out and tired at the end of it, how do you let it go? Um, I had to walk away from it. But the problem was is that when I walked away from it, people were not... There wasn't a conversation about it. There Meaning, weren't. There weren't people like there, I just had. I just walked away, and nobody came to me and said, "Hey, what do we need to do to facilitate this?" So I, I left. I moved to the other side of the river, and they just kept going. But nobody was directing. I don't want that bothered me. Because it was just, it was like, as I said, oh, well, here's, here's what we do. Here's our free thing. And everybody was just continuing to do whatever they wanted to do with it, but nobody was directing it. It was just sitting there floating. Nobody came to me and said, let's have a conversation about how to, how to how forward to this thing. It. Right. So, you know, there was a little bit of animosity that came down because I had to force the hand on it and go, guys, y'all can't keep doing something unless you take responsibility for it, which they did. Um, and they have kept it going ever since I left, which is, you know, they've done a good job with it. They've taken it where they've taken it. To go back to your question then, I very pointedly said, I don't want to do what I did on Main Street. I've done it. I know how much work it is. I know the end result of it. And I don't want to go to, to State Street and start something which everybody's going to look at as the com- competition to that. True. I don't want to start a competitor to the thing that I started. I don't want to get involved in that. So the reality is, is when I got over there, I was like, okay, I'm going to do everything different. I'm going to turn it around. I don't want to do what I did over there. I'm not going to do that. And so for the first six months, we didn't do anything like that. I pointedly was like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to get involved in this. But after six months, you start running into the same issue that we did the first six months over on Main Street. So you start, all right, what can we do that's different? So we started trying to do like a Saturday, you know, like a Saturday afternoon-based thing where we would get artists to come out. Of course, that didn't work very well when you're, talking in June, July, August, and it's It's 100 degrees out there, and that doesn't work. So we lost traction on that, but then eventually it came back to enough of the people that were over there were like, well, why don't we just do what you used to do? And I was like... Okay. So we chose first Friday, but I very openly, and, and I will say this on air, it is officially called... State Street Art Crawl. It is officially called that for a reason. Because calling something First Friday, when you have a First Thursday across the river, comes off as being competition. And I was not going to compete with First Thursday. 
I was doing everything I could do to keep it out of the West Columbia versus Columbia, Columbia versus West Columbia realm. This was, this was about, hey, this is a new area. This is an area that needs to be revitalized, just like Main Street did. And I know that this is a path that works. But let's try and do it a little bit differently so that we don't run into the same problem that we ran into on Main Street. Um, a lot of the newer people that have come on board in the last year are very excited about a First Friday moniker. And they have pushed the first Friday, much to my chagrin. Um, I think it's now called the first Friday. It's on State Street. Yeah, so they've kind of merged the two together, which I think is, is actually a great compromise. You know, I think for me, when we moved to State Street, it was about trying to focus purely on the business and not be so dedicated to building the physical street like I did on Main Street. Um, but dude, once you do it, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of like a drug. And it's <laughs> like, you know, you just, it's, so eventually within a year to two years, you're, 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 you're right back in the same thing and you're, you're committing your time and, and pushing to try and make an area grow because of course State Street actually is a great area. It really yeah, is. And it has, and it you is know, growing. And it, it is, is growing. It's an amazing area. The city of West Columbia is completely different than the city of Columbia. I have a completely different relationship with the city of West Columbia than I did with the city of Columbia. And that's not a comment on the city of Columbia. They're two completely different entities. The city of Columbia is a lot bigger, a lot more people, a lot more moving parts, a lot more departments, and a much, 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 much older model, which has a lot more hiccups and flaws built into it than something like a West Columbia. West Columbia is lean, mean, uh, it can easily pivot left or right, and they have a staff and a city administrator who's very hungry and very forward-thinking. So I, I had a completely different relationship with the city of West Columbia government than I did the city of Columbia. And that, that was actually important because they bought in and supported, even though it's not financially, they have bought in and supported a lot of what we've done with the State Street Art Crawler first Friday at State Street. So, you know, it's been a continuation of the learning process from Main Street. It's really only been the last six months to a year of the process of going through what it is that we're going to do with our lives. Do we want to continue on State Street? Do we want to continue, you know, frame of mind or where are we going? That this very poignant lesson that we were talking about has become relevant and it's that we've tried it on two different streets and you read about it all over the United States Charleston it happens all the time, it's Charlotte it happens you read about it everywhere and we all get aggravated and mad at it. I got aggravated and mad at it. I'll go there <laughs> TAPS, it's a perfect example we all got mad about TAPS I got aggravated about TAPS. Why is TAPS closing? There's no good reason why TAPS should close. All right. There's a lot of answers to that. Right. There's a lot of political ramifications. This isn't about that. You know, whatever people believe about it, that's what they need to believe. That's fine. But the lesson that was learned on TAPS or the, or the, the nail that was driven home for me on TAPS 
is the concept that we're all mad and fighting over the existence of an, of, an, of an art center. We're fighting over territory. We're getting mad because a process, which is a natural process, which has happened for decades, you can't break the process. People love something that has value. When a group of people go into something because it's cheap enough and they can afford it, and they do their job well, they build value because artists build value. That's what we do. We're natural value builders. When we do that, other people respond to that. And then more people are going to respond to it. And then more people are going to... It's a natural process. And with TAPS, what we really, to me, what we saw was the end of that cycle right. that we all get mad about. Right. But maybe instead of getting mad about fighting for a singular location for a group of artists, maybe we should take that energy and put it into how do we leverage where our value is. Instead of fighting for the end result, why don't we start for the beginning? Instead of fighting and spending all of our time and gnashing our teeth because we have built a value into a physical location that we can't afford to pay anymore, and if somebody owns that, or even if we own it, and somebody comes to us and says, hey, we'll pay you X number of dollars for this space, you're going to cave. All right. Every human being is going to cave to that. We get mad because we cave. Rightfully so. I'm not saying that's wrong. I mean, we all have ideal, you know, we're all idealists, especially in the art world, and that's true. I'm not trying to argue with the idealism. I'm just trying to say this like a realism. And realism is, is we have more value at the front end than we do at the back end of the process. So if we go, wait a minute, we've seen this happen before. And a city the size of Columbia, or let's say the, the, say the Midlands, how many opportunities do we have every seven to ten years? Some area is going to be the cheap area. Some area is going to be the start of, of that process. process. So why don't we as artists recognize that we tend to be the match and leverage our value off that end? Again, it's a conversation that needs to be continued. How do you do that? But I think that we just, we just don't, we don't look at it hard enough. We're too busy being ideal and fighting on the back end of it. So when did, so we're going to move into, so you guys have closed frame of mind. Yeah. Um, and you're moving on to another venture now. <laughs> was this, what we're talking about, was this a result of this realization of how the process works? Or did it Boy, just, you really ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I do, man. It's what I do. Uh, so you're talking about the new venture? Yeah, Is I mean, well, that, well, so, okay. so. State Street had its, it's, it's growing, it's, it's right. doing its own thing, um, and you've stepped back from that. Right. Um, you're closing your brick and mortar. Right. Um, not because of, just because you, 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 you want to try something different. You're, you're moving. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a again, with me, it's a, it's a convoluted process. Um, you know, being in a brick-and-mortar location, whether you're in art, whether you're in eyewear, whether you're a grocery store, whether you're a clothing store, 
You know, in today's day and times, that's an extremely difficult endeavor. We all know this. We see this documented virtually every day. You know, small businesses, for the most part, under siege. We know this. Um, you know, small businesses everywhere are closing. Big businesses everywhere are closing. Sure. I mean, businesses are struggling. Um, I'm not going to say that that's necessarily an abnormality over the last five to ten years. I mean, obviously, the nature of business comes and goes. It fluxes. You know, some areas are hot. Those areas that were hot at one time cool off. It, you see it in, in real estate all the time. Again, Main Street was something 30, 40 years ago. It was, it was, it was the hot area, and then it cooled off. Everybody moved to the suburbs. It's gotten hot again because everybody wants to come back downtown. Guarantee you in 20 years, you're going to see people moving out yeah. to the suburbs yeah, again. Cool this is how it works. It's cyclical. So business is cyclical. You know, uh, uh, restaurants 20, 30 years ago were the bomb. 10, 15 years ago, restaurants had a hard time. It was a lot of chains. A lot of your mom and pop restaurants were struggling to survive. What is the biggest thing right now? Food and alcohol. Yeah. Food so and alcohol, man. That's your, it, man. Your, your micro distilleries, your yeah. micro breweries, your brew pubs, your, your, your highly specialized, you know, food restaurants and stuff like that, that's, that's where the money goes. So give it another 10 years, 15 years, you'll see it flip. So in no way, shape, or form am I saying, you know, mad at somebody. Being in retail is a difficult endeavor to begin with. There are new challenges when you talk about, you know, Amazon and the internet, or in some cases, people are very highly affected by the Walmarts of this world. New challenges, new things that you have to combat. Um, We go back to the start of the conversation, an hour ago, whatever it was. Um, Why did we start frame of mind. What was our goal? Well, there was a large hole. I talked to a lot of people in my industry and virtually everybody in my industry said, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. You're never going to make it work. Columbia and South Carolina as a whole, but Columbia is too much of a bread and butter state. We'll sell Nike all day long. We'll sell Ray-Ban all day long. You'll sell Gantt all day long. These are all eyewear company, you know, brands that I'm talking about. Um, but you're never going to be able to make a boutique stick. Don't do it. Well, I did. <laughs> you know, I jumped in there thinking, well, you know, the only real problem with Columbia is that it's behind. And again, this is not a slam on Columbia. We all know, anybody that's been here more than five years knows Columbia is routinely behind the rest of the United States. I will say when I was here in college, we were dramatically behind. I left, and when I came back nine years later, I was shocked at how much we were catching up. But we were still behind. So why did I start the business? Because I felt like, well, we're just simply behind. 
if we're 10 to 15 years behind, and I know that there are places in other states that have been around for 10 to 15 years, I'll be the agent of change. I'll, I'll bring this business in, and we'll force the change. We'll, we'll be at the front edge of the wave. We're, we're not going to be behind. We're going to be riding the wave as everything in Columbia moves forward. <laughs> that you, wave you, you don't you don't control the time right, right. <laughs> that wave you can is still developing <laughs> you don't control the time you can you see know? it's coming but you can't do anything right, about it right so um we've spent i've spent 12 years in retail in this city fighting every day to get people to value what it is that i do and as an artist as a creative not as a typical entrepreneur or business person. I fight every day for my dream and my passion. I'm not cold and calculating. If I was cold and calculating like a, like a lot of business people, I won't say all business, but like a lot of business people, I would have quit years ago. I'm a passionate person. I'm, I'm a creative. And I believe in small business, and I believe in communities, and I believe that I can't give up. I got to keep pushing. I got to keep pushing. Um, there's a truth somewhere in the middle. Realism versus idealism. Um, you know, we decided, the conversation started to be happen, started to happen between my partner and I about a year ago. Where do we ultimately want to go? Um, we're still fighting to survive on a monthly basis, you know, on a quarterly basis. We're still fighting to survive. <laughs> We're over 10 years into this. You know, where do we want to take this? What do we want to do? And the realization starts to come in uh, two places. One is I had decided that, you know, we're tr about a year ago we started looking at where we want to go, how we want to, how we want to, move forward and you, you, we put about a dozen years into the business and so we we start looking at where we want to go now to backtrack a tiny bit about two years ago let me say it this way the type of retail that I'm in um, this isn't true for all businesses this is just the type of retail that I'm in um and it's been this way for every optical shop I've ever been in for 23 years. There's a lot of hurry up and wait. Um, Meaning, mo most optical shops do not have two or three people in their business at, at, at every hour that they're open. Okay. Most optical shops, unless you're a doctor, most optical shops hurry up and wait for people to walk in the door. So there's a certain amount of downtime that's built into optical shops. That's not good for me. I, that drives me crazy. I, I just, the constant waiting for somebody to come in to buy a pair of glasses is just, just, it's agonizing to me, especially when you're the business owner and you're watching, you know, the money. Right. <laughs> you're looking at the financial side of it. So, a couple of years ago, I, by chance, happened upon a side business. Um, I, 
I, I was hanging out with my, my cousins who were woodworkers. And they made a handmade wooden box for a pair of sunglasses. You know, it was really cool. It was a great little box. I showed it to a friend of mine. And he was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. This is brilliant. There's nobody doing that in the market. If you can figure out how to do that for a set amount of dollars, we can sell those everywhere. Well, that was a handmade box, and there was no way we could get those boxes made for the dollar amount that he was suggesting. But that planted the seed, so I started looking, well, is there a way to do it? And so we, you know, I started looking and looking, sort of finding ways, what wood boxes are pre-made, blah, 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 blah. We stumbled across cigar boxes. Mm -hmm. And so we started, uh, I started doing cigar boxes where I take old cigar, used cigar boxes, and we retrofit those as multiple pair eyewear cases. So we'll, we, we will go to the cigar box, and, you know, we'll go to Charleston and hit a couple cigar shops down there. We'll go up to Charlotte and we'll buy their used cigar boxes and then we'll take them back and we'll basically, we felt them and divide, paint and divide them and then resell them as a box that you can put on your side table that will hold more than one pair of glasses or will hold your, your wallet, keys, keys change, sunglasses, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's reusing stuff that eventually is going to go to the landfill, uh, and it's filling a, a niche in the market that nobody's filling, which is a needed niche, and we're doing it in a way in which it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. So the common person can buy one of these. We retail them anywhere from about $35, $40 up to about $75. We have special versions that are much more expensive because they're, we do all, you know, we, we've developed this idea into some very high-end type things, but our average prices are anywhere from $35 to $75. So that got started as kind of a, a side project. It's kind of a, a time filler, something that I could do in the shop while I'm waiting for people to come in and buy eyewear. So it was, a, it was an extension of a creative process for me, something I get to do with my hands. Mm -hmm. I get to take a box, I get to look at it and go, I want to do X, Y, Z. How am I going to do X, Y, Z? And then make that happen. So just like any, I'm probably taking liberties here, but how most artists will well, processing. Sure, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. The, it's the same basic thing for me. So it's, it was a creative outlet for me that was created as a side business that could make a little bit of money. Well, we decided that about a year ago that we wanted to try and push that into its own separate company that could make money in and of itself and could ease the stress on the physical store, the brick-and-mortar store. So we started pushing that forward. So we're a little over two years into that process. How we got to where we are is, A, we started that side business and have received a pretty good response to it. We're still in the build process. We're still making the company, building it up. It takes a few years to build something like that up to where you're actually making X number of dollars to it. But everybody that we talk to, we get within the industry and outside of the industry, we, we, we get great feedback, fantastic feedback on it. So we've grown that business up to where we're taking it to markets. We're trying to get involved in opticians events where we can actually take it straight to opticians and doctors and start a wholesale side to it and that kind of stuff. So that has grown. We've watched the business continue to struggle. The brick and mortar continue to struggle. 
and we just got to a point to where we decided it's time to do something different. So trying to decide what is different, well, obviously, the cigar box eyewear cases, which is called Cult of Eyewear, that has its own identity and has its own chunk of time and energy being committed to it. But what is different on the other side of it? Well, do we want to try and stick with a brick and mortar? Do we want to try and shift to maybe a different format of that? What do we want to do? Mixed into that is the 10 plus years that we have of doing events. Um, you know, I've done from First Thursday, from, from building or promoting First Thursday and State Street Art Crawl, I have have had another company called Shamelessly Hot, which was a burlesque base or, a, or an alternative circus based production company. Um, you know, we've done numerous different types of events. And I have been working closely with the city of West Columbia for the last two years on events such as Kinetic Derby Day and the Art on State and all of that stuff that's going on. We've, we've, we've been working with, like hand in hand with the municipality. So for us, they're, all of the last 10 years, all of the stuff that we're talking about, about lessons that we've learned, all starts to get boiled down into where do we want to go in the future? All right, well, we want to work on the cult of eyewear. We want that to kind of be, we want to pivot in the eyewear industry. We want to pivot away from a brick and mortar per se, away from business as usual. Uh, because at the same time I'm talking about all this, we're also looking hardcore at the, at the, at the eyewear industry. And you know, I've been in the eyewear industry for 23 years. I've been involved in the boutique side of it for about 15 years. And it's changing. It's changed dramatically. It's changed. It'll never go away. In no way, shape, or form do I ever think that the optical industry or even the boutique side will ever stop existing. But the way in which it is functioning today is dramatically different than the way it was functioning 23 years ago when I got in. Insurance companies, big business, the internet have dramatically reshaped the landscape and who are the players and where people are coming from and it's changing uh, the options that the everyday consumer has. The physical options, where they can physically buy glasses, what they can physically buy versus what they can buy online, it's just dramatically changed. And so for me, being involved for 23 years, it's like, it's time for me to pivot. Maybe I'll re-engage somewhere down the f in the future, somewhere down the line, but I want to pivot. Is it because you get whatever you want online? Is that really? Well, when I got into the industry, when I got into the boutique industry 15 years ago, you know, boutique, boutique glasses were small, small batch, small companies that you could buy retail. You could buy 300 for a frame, 350 for a frame. Those same companies are now at the five and $600 point. Not necessarily by their choice, but because of when, when the recession hit and the realignment of everything and insurance got involved, what ended up happening in our, in our industry, in the optical industry, what ended up happening was 
Basically, a hole opened up. A lot of people went value lines. A lot of people went, you know, the, what we call the, what I, and I said this when the recession hit like eight, nine years ago. I was like, we're going to, our industry, all industries, but our industry is going to, it's going to, you're going to see a polarization. You're going to see people going high and you're going to see people going low. It's going to open up a hole in the middle. And this is exactly what happened. Most people either went high and a lot of the people went low. They went to the, the lower price point or the mid price point. And that, that kind of mid-high just kind of, it, it ceased to exist. Well, what happened was a lot of those boutique lines that were actually high-end that were priced at that mid-high, they ended up going up. And the insurance industry itself drove a need to provide a price point in the middle. And so there are a lot of new products, a lot of new companies that have come in that have filled that price point, which 10, 15 years ago was high-end, like small-batch, handmade stuff. There's now a product that fills that, which is not small-batch. It's not handmade product. But they're, they're marketing it as a boutique or a luxury product. But it's... So, that, so all the stuff I'm used to has gone dramatically higher and where those people used to exist, there's a whole new group of, of companies that weren't there 10, 15 years ago and are entering the market with a different mindset. So for me, the, the industry has just changed dramatically in a way in which, you know what, I'm just tired after 23 years, I want to do something different. And so I'm pivoting to a accessories-based model because there's a bit of a hole in the accessories side of it. So I'm trying to sidestep over and do something that gives me creative freedom, that I can have fun, I can build this company, enjoy my time, blah, 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 and get out of wherever the industry is going. And not have to sit around and wait. Not have to sit around and wait. Getting rid of that model. So we decided to pursue more of that and in so doing all right well if we're going to do that and we're going to start looking at getting rid of the brick and mortar we still have this whole event-based stuff that we do i tried to stay on as much as i could so we try you know we know that i've been involved in producing events for over 10 years every time i try to stop I'm inevitably drawn back in. You know? <laughs> I can't, you know, my partner will you tell you this. It's like, can't you, can't, you can't get away from it. It's like, I'll even say things like, I'm done, I'm tired, I'm going to, and two months later, I'm over there, ooh, what if we do this? And oh, let's create this. If we add this, we add this. It's part of my creative. It's part of what I do. I do events. It's, it's, that's just, I love to come up with creative events and, and implement them and put them out there. So, we, we, we started to build the cult of eyewear side, and we're looking at, all right, well, what else? We know we're not going to get rid of the events because I can't get out of it. So we decided to put some time and energy and effort into another business that I have, which is P-Squared or Plessinger Productions, um, and, and try and say, okay, we're going to let Plessinger Productions produce events. We're, we're going to let them do all the creative arts-based, cultural arts-based events that I inevitably do, we're just going to let that be the driving, that's going to be the hands-on piece of that that everybody can connect with. Then this lesson has come up that we've talked about, which is, you know, 
how, how do we value ourselves as artists? Do we flip the, the, the front or the back end of the process, the whole nine yards? So we, in this process, said, well, what if we took Plessinger Square? Now, we keep doing events with P-Square. We, we continue to do this. But what if we take that and we turn it into a consulting firm? Uh, kind of a spinoff of what I do with West Columbia. I mean, you know, we, we can work with communities to do some cultural arts events. But what if we also used it as a, as a, as a firm, consulting firm, where we could go in and we could sit down with the municipality and have this conversation? Like, okay, first of all, you already are aware of what cultural arts can do. So let us come in and help you identify what cultural assets you have. Identify what location it is that you want to rebuild. And let's put a program together, what we call a cultural tourism program, where we're leveraging your cultural arts that you have in that area. And if you don't have enough, we can supplement it with others. And create a cultural tourism program which will help rebuild said area that you need rebuilt. With the caveat that we have the, the, the conversation at the front end. We're not using these artists to rebuild an area. We're not going to use that word. We're not going to go there. We have to make this worth the artist's time. On the front end. On the front end. We need to know that arts are going to rebuild XYZ area. And you have certain artists in this area that, that we can work with to, to, to add value to that area. But what are we going to do to pay them for their value and their time at the front end, knowing that they're only going to be there a set number of years and then they're going to move on because that's how this works. And then going to artists and doing the same thing. We would go to artists in that area and go, okay, here's what we're doing. We're going to work to rebuild XYZ area. We need your involvement. But here's the deal. We want you to be involved in the rebuilding process, not in the permanence process. We need you to understand that your value lies in helping this area rebuild. You're going to be displaced. That's how this works. Let's just accept that and agree with that now. But if we can set up a system where we can get you in here, in five, within five years, we as P-Square and any municipality are going to be looking where the next rebuild is. And we want to be able to take those assets and pivot them in seven to ten years to the next rebuild area. So it's having a relationship with artists where we're going, okay. It's a partnership for a future endeavor. Exactly. We need you to jump on board now, help this area rebuild with the understanding that we need you we're, we're, not, we're not building you an art center here. Let's, let's not go there. Let's, let's, let's get you your money and your value now. And then we're going to, we want you to go with us. In five, seven years, we're going to hop to another area. We want you to go with us. Because we're going to get you your value there. But trying to say, well, this is our area. We were the ones that established it. And we should maintain an art center here for the next 20 years. You know, your value is being the wayfinder and being, you know, the path. You know, you're, you're blazing the paths. And, and when you blaze a path, everything behind you turns into money. Well, we just got to leverage you. Let's let you be the pathfinder and leverage you. And, doing, and then having that same conversation with a, with a municipality. Don't sell short the artists at the front end. 
We're not going to argue with you about where we're going to be in 10 years. We're not going to argue with you about where we're going to be in 15 years. We're not going to have that discussion. But let's not sell them short on the front end. Because if you don't have them, you don't rebuild. We all know this. So we are trying to fold that into P-square where we can take P-square and we can start having these conversations with artists and municipalities. So those two, P-square and Cult of Eyewear, were the main thrust on, okay, what do we want to do? How do we, how do we want to move forward in the next six months, year, five years of, of our path? And trying to figure out what we're going to do with a brick and mortar. So this is where everything gets interesting. <laughs> I like it. Because that was our path. Our path was, all right, we're going to develop cult of eyewear. We're going to do markets. We're going to try and get involved in optical events and opticians associations and all this kind of stuff and build that up as, as my, my continued involvement in the optical industry. And we want to work P-square from being able to do arts events and work with cities and help make an impact and change the way, hopefully the way we as artists and cities who deal with artists, how we function. Somewhere in the process of that, a gallery space appeared. <laughs> it disappeared. <laughs> and it did, literally, it just appeared. This was, this was not what was trying, this wasn't the direction that we were going. You know, all of this is a process. I can't sit here and say, well, a year ago we decided, we're, no, 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 no. I mean, this is, there were questions there, you know, anybody, everybody knows life is a series of questions that you're constantly asking and you're, and you're answering and moving through and moving through. So I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, well, a year ago we knew we were going to close. No, 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 no. It, it actually, as far as closing the brick and mortar, that actually happened. Really, honestly, it happened Thanksgiving. That, that was basically the break-even point. You know, obviously all the months leading up to that fed to that point. But we, we weren't looking at doing a gallery. We were, you know, we're trying to figure out what's, you know, when, when, when do we decide to pull the plug on a brick and mortar, which is a very difficult thing when you've done it for 12 years and you know it. It's, you know, it's that cement block that's holding you to the, to the bottom of the lake. But damn it, you know that cement block and you're comfortable yeah. with it, you know. <laughs> Occasionally you can put your toe on it and get your, your mouth just above the water line to breathe. What do you do when you cut the chain that holds you onto that cement block? I mean, that it was a comfort zone, and it, and, it, and, it, and it still is to a certain extent, even though we don't have it anymore. So, you know, it's a process of trying to figure out what are we going to do, how are we going to do this. In that process, we started doing markets. Again, I've spent half my life in date. I have family in date. I have family in the South. I have family in Dayton. So we started going, well, you know what? They've got a really cool market up there. It's like Soda City Market, but it's indoors. And it's actually, it's uh, the first half of the year, the first five months, it's three days a week. The, the last seven months, it's uh, four days a week. So they do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's all indoors. So... You know, it's, it's, a, it's been there for about 15 to 20 years. It's well-established. Um, we thought, you know what? We're trying to build the cult of eyewear. Here's an opportunity. 
try it out, see what happens. We'll do it at a market, see how the average person buys it, how they respond to it. So we started going up to date and working the market up there to kind of, you know, we give us a chance to visit family, be around family, which I had had a lot of time to be around for a while. It got us a chance to start to grow the cult of eyewear to kind of get a little bit of a presence up there. If we decided to, to have more of a presence up there, we would be pre-building that. In the process, again, P-Square, I'm an event guy. So we're constantly looking around at what, what, what do the arts hold here? Who's here? What, who's not here? What event spaces are there? What, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, is there a storm water? Is there a taps? You know, what, what's the lay of the land? What's the, what's the community and environment like? So we were aware of a couple different spaces up there that are more of a conglomeration of artists that do some arts events and things like that. Well, one of them is called Front Street. We had heard about Front Street. We knew about it. We did some research on it. Um, cool space. <clears throat> They've been around for a few years. The buildings themselves have been around for about 30 to 40 years as far as within the public consciousness. But the current incantation of it has been around for probably three, four years, something like that. Um, we were aware of this place called Front Street. We actually looked into it to see, you know, what, what was it about? And it's, it, you know, the research we saw was it, was it was a building that had a lot of art studios and art galleries in it. And, you know, we were like, oh, that's kind of cool. We kind of thought, well, you know, if, if anything were to happen, like if we decide to close down uh, the brick and mortar, we have to have a place to make our boxes because we make Cult of Eyewear exist inside frame of mind. Like, you know, we would take tables out and set tables up and literally make all the product in, on the showroom floor when people weren't in there. So if you decide to shut that down, where are you going to make the product, you know, I don't have a garage where I live, so you know, there's always that, well, you know you can find a relatively inexpensive studio space, you know so we looked at Front Street from the idea of well, maybe there's a, a studio space there, but, you know they're full they're, they're booked out, it's the, the, the building is, you know, it's, it's in and of itself, so we're, we're not even we weren't even contemplating it. We were just having conversations about what do we want to do with the market? What do we want to do with P-Square? How do we want to move this forward? Well, we were at a market one day. This is back in like August or September, and uh, exactly what you think of when you think of an artist, a painter, walks up to our table, paint all over his shirt, all over his pants, all over his butt, you know, as any good painter, you know, you, you end up spreading your, your wares all over your body. And he walked up and, to make a long story short, fell in love with the product that we have. Like, just flat out fell in love with the boxes. Like, just lost his mind over the boxes. He walked off, he came back, he walked off again, he came back, kept having conversations, and, you know... We ended up having a conversation at the end where the, the, the artist kept going, well, have you ever heard of Front Street? Of course we've heard of Front Street. I mean, you know, we've been around here long enough to know that you know, there's Front Street. He goes, ah, well, have you 
ever thought of being in Front Street. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been an idea, that, but, you know, you guys are full. Like, I mean, and he just kind of looked at us and said, really? Well, what are you doing this afternoon? You should come over and have a conversation with me. Okay, so we said okay, and we found out where he was at and how long he was going to be there and blah, blah, blah. And he left. Well, about the time he left, there was somebody that was standing beside him when he left. And then the two of them had been talking. When he left, the guy looked at us and he said, um, if he's asking you to do anything, the answer is yes. Really? Because he is the art scene in Dayton, Ohio. He is the most prominent artist. He is amazing, and he is connected to everybody in this city. So if he's asking you to do something, I would strongly suggest you take him up on the offer. Holy crap. Okay, where did this come from? All right, so, so anyways, we, you know, we got to the end of the day. We went over there and, and to meet him, and of course, he was teaching a class. He told us he was going to be teaching a class. So, this guy is an amazing artist. He paints on metal. He does, I've never seen anything that he does. He paints on metal. It's all kind of abstract, ethereal, but he, he just loves people. So he teaches classes. He teaches, he, he, just, he has kids. He does adults. You know, he puts pallets down on the floor and just has people not really do a Jackson Pollock, but something similar to that. Just, you know, just having a great time teaching kids and adults how to, the composition and how to do that kind of stuff. So we walked in, and he was in the middle of doing a class, and, and you know, he was, hey, good to see you in the middle of doing this, walk around. So we walked around the building, which is an old manufacturing building. The Midwest is rife with them, as you know and most yeah. people know. It's an old, old, old manufacturing building. Um, I think we saw a, a short not documentary, but information piece on it the other day. It used to have. Is that the video was, you sent me? Yeah, I think it had. It had a. It it held the. Uh, it was the envelope company. I think, if I remember right, they made envelopes in this building, and it was all the envelopes and wrappings that the U.S. government used for like 30, 40, 50 years came out of this one building. Um, so there's a crap ton of history in this building. But it's a three-story building, old manufacturing building, that they have gone in and basically made studios in. They create hallways down the middle of it, and then there's studios to the left or to the right off of that hallway. Um, the guy that we're talking about has, like, over 3,000 square foot all the way up on the top floor, and it's an awe-inspiring space that he has. Um, his art's amazing. His space is amazing. So we went and walked around the building, and we, was, eh, we put about, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour walking around. And we're like, all right, well, you know, we've been here. We said hi to him. You know, we'll, we'll reconnect with him. We'll go up and say goodbye and tell him we'll reconnect. Well, we got up there. We went back up to the third floor, and he said, ah, oh, perfect timing. Come on in. I just finished my class. Let's go have a conversation. So we went to his, quote-unquote, office and sat down, and an hour and a half later, as you know, I can talk. <laughs> An hour and a half later, after having spilled my life story, apparently, to him, and the whole time I'm talking to him, his eyes are getting bigger and his energy's getting, and he's jumping more and more. 
hour and a half later, we're standing there, we're sitting there talking to him, and he pulls his phone, mid conversation, he pulls his phone out, we're still talking to him, I'm just like I'm talking to you, he pulls his phone out and starts messing around with his phone, I'm like, what's wrong with this guy, I'm, like, I'm literally talking to him, and all of a sudden, you hear it ring, oh, that's weird, <laughs> he, he calls the guy that owns the building, as we're talking, he literally, he calls the guy. He's like, you got to come talk to these people. Like, you got to get over here now. Where are you at? Get over here. I was like, I'm not there. I'm like, it's going to take me 30 minutes. He's like, fine, you got to get over here. These guys are leaving, going out of town on Monday. They're going back to South Carolina. You got to get over here now. So the guy that owns the place came over within 30 minutes, and we sat down and talked for another 20, 25 minutes, and he just said, how much space do you how much do you want? Of course, we're like, you know, three hours ago, we weren't even thinking about Couldn't this place. Even, yeah. Suddenly, because it's full. So here we are three hours later, and this guy's going, how much space do you need? So we're like, I don't know. This is it's a slight add-in here. I say slight. Everything we were doing, as I said a little bit ago, everything we were doing was based off of Cult of Eyewear and P-Square. So any conversation we were having with Front Street relied really on just having a space to be able to work on Cult of Eyewear. That's the only real reason why we were there. That and the fact that I was in, I'm, I'm in the arts. This is what I do. He's obviously a well-known artist. This is obviously a group of artists. This is a great connection. But, but ultimately, all we were having a discussion about was being able to have a studio space in there, which they didn't have any space on. Well, through that hour and a half conversation, talking about First Thursday, State Street Art Crawl, uh, P-Square, the events that we do, the signature events that we do, suddenly the idea of a gallery was put in front of us. That was never anything that we were talking about doing. We were, again, we were doing P-Square, we were doing Cult of Eyewear. And he, this artist looked at us and said, well, you know one of the things that needs to happen? We need a gallery space in this building that is dedicated to non-local artists. And, and of course, I'm like, okay, well, uh, wait, I'm not sure I heard that right. Say that again. Yeah, because you would never hear that from another. You, you never, we need you to bring other people in. Yes. So I said, say that again. And he said, we need a gallery. We have plenty of galleries in this building, but we need a gallery space that's dedicated to non-local artists. I said, okay. Let me say it back to you and see if, I, <laughs> if, if what I'm hearing is correct. What you're telling me is, that you would like to see somebody open a gallery in here that can bring all of their connections that they have from out of state into here and show it. He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. I said, okay, well, I got like a dozen artists, I guarantee you, yeah. will jump on this the moment this happens. And he's like, okay, make it happen. So, Two hours earlier, we're not. We're, there's no conversation about a gallery. This is not involved. This is not where we're trying to go. We're trying to do P-square. We're trying to do cults of eyewear. And 
the owner of the building comes in and sits down, and he's like, okay, what is it that you, I, I basically know what you want to do, but tell me again exactly what you want to do. And he said, he said, okay, you're an optical guy. I said, yeah. He goes, all right, so you're saying you need space for your boxes. I said, yes. He goes, are you, and, and you want to do a gallery? I said, well, you all suggested it. You know, okay. Well, what about your eyewear? I was like, well, no, I mean, that's retail. I'm not interested in, I mean, I, you know, that's, he goes, I don't give a crap about retail. You want to do eyewear? Well, that's not going to be a uh, yes. I'll just, let's just say yes. And he goes, fine, do I work? How much space do you need? I said, well, we just went from a small space. So I said, I don't know. What if we did like maybe two 500 space, square foot space units, so a 1,000 square foot? He goes, okay, cheers. You got it. Of course, there was no money in there. Right. <laughs> you know, right. It was like, well, hold on. <laughs> So then you have to have the conversation about money. And, you know, the dollar amount that he gave us about knocked us off of our feet, um, off the chairs we were sitting on. I mean, you know, the dollar amount was absolutely stupidly cheap. Um, I say it to a lot of artists down here when they hear it, including you, when I told you what it was. You know, I've had people say, damn, that's like, 10, 15 year ago prices. Yeah, that's not absolutely. even that's not even close to what current prices are. And the price that he that he quoted for us also included all the electricity and the heat because it's a steam heated building. Basically put, it ended up being less than half of what we pay for our current or what we did pay for our retail space that we had here. Now there's been a slight change to that. Um, he couldn't make two 500 square foot or 1,000 square foot, he actually, the way the place is built, he had to do 600 square foot units. So we have a 1,200 square foot space, bigger which, which is bigger than what we thought. It did bump the daily or the monthly amount going out. The, 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 amount, the per square foot stayed the same, but the space got bigger, which actually made it easier for us because I was struggling to figure out how we were going to fit all of what we do into a thousand square foot and we ended up with more than that and actually we've measured it since then because we've been in the space and we're pretty certain it's actually even a little bit bigger than that hmm. so and when you look at the dollar amount the monthly dollar amount we're putting out we're going to get a space that's almost the same size as what we're leaving or less than half of what we were paying um, and that includes electricity and that includes heat. So this gallery suddenly got put on the plate in front of us. Now, you know, I had kind of mentioned this earlier when, before we started recording. The way things have happened as far as closing frame of mind and this, this whole deal with Dayton, <laughs> you know, this, this wasn't on the plate in July and August. This is not, you know, again, we're, we're looking at Cult of Eyewear. We're looking at... Maybe we can start consulting with some small municipalities, you know, and start maybe trying to help municipalities put a cultural tourism program together. You know, the, the gallery was never a thought. You know, having a physical space was never a thought. But the way September, October, November unfolded was, you know, so serendipitous it wasn't even funny. Like, I mean, things were just very clear lines were being drawn 
for us as to where were we going and where did we not need to go. Um, I was still holding on to the brick and mortar because, as I said earlier, it's, it's what you know. Right. It's comfort. You know, it gives you a place to stand. Even though it hasn't done what I needed to do, to do it gave me a place to stand. You know, Thanksgiving just came to a point where, you know, our, our lease was coming up at the end of January and we had to take a really good hard look at where we were at on a financial level and it was very easy to make the decision. Very easy to make the decision. It was not worth us continuing to try and put money into a space that was routinely struggling to pay the rent, which is a very difficult thing to admit, yeah. especially to the public but we were struggling to pay the rent at the tail end. And so it, it became, as bad as that is, it made, it made decisions a lot, lot easier. <laughs> a lot easier, you know? <laughs> so where are, we, where are you guys at now? Like where, right, so you've had this meeting, you've had, these spa- you had the space, you've been there. Right. Um, do you have a, do you have a uh, projection of like when you're going to get things rolling, where, where you're well, at with the gallery? We, where we stand now is... We actually have the spaces done. It is sitting there waiting for us. Um, we have closed down frame of mind. We have put all the fixtures and all the things that we need to put into that space up there. We have put it in storage here. So where we're at is trying to piece together this journey of getting the stuff out of storage into a truck driven up there and into that location and then getting it going. We have commitments for events that we have to do outside of that, including that space. Like we've got some, we've got some markets that we have to do. We have events that we're doing down here, obviously with Kinetic Derby Day, and we have some opticians events that we're doing up in Ohio. So we've got a lot of stuff on our plate. It's constantly juggling. spinning and juggling trying to figure that out with getting the stuff up there and then the financial side to that. So, you know, we, we basically, we're, we're, we're trying to get some people in the community to help. We're trying to, we've started a, a GoFundMe to try and get some people to, to help us out, um, both from this community and from up, you know, in the Dayton community. And honestly, trying to get the story out on what it is that we're doing because, to close the business was a, was a relatively emotional decision to make. You know, you don't want to ever come out and say, you know, well, we're struggling to pay rent. That's not something you want to do. Um, and how do you tell somebody that you've spent years giving your blood, sweat, and tears to that you're going to another city? we're not really going to another city. We, you know, we're gonna, we're going to be in another city. We're going to be spending probably, I would say more than half of our time in Dayton, Ohio, but we're not leaving Columbia. We're not turning our back on Columbia. You know, we've been given an opportunity to help Columbia in a lot of senses. Yeah. Um, the, the concept behind the gallery was never on our plans. But once it was, it was thrown at us, it very quickly developed into a realization that 
all, and including this artist we were talking to in day, all artists struggle in their own market. Yeah. So if you're a Columbia-based artist, you struggle. It, it is what it is. If you're a Dayton-based artist, you struggle. This is another common theme that we don't talk about that much. Um, it's the fact that, you know, as, as we've said multiple times over the last month, month and a half, never a profit in your own community. You know, um, what we've come to a realization of is it's got to do with what, what I call or what we call sense of urgency. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're a, you know, you and Krajewski or Whitney Lejeune or, you know, anybody, any of these, you know, of our beloved artists, you're here. When you do a show here, those people show up because they know you, because they right. love you. They want to support you by being there. They know that they're going to see you again in another two months or another three months. They know that they're going to see you in six months. They know that they're going to get to watch your work evolve in front of them. They have a different buy-in to you as an artist than they would say if I brought this guy from Ohio that we're talking about, if I brought him down. They don't know him. Yeah. Now they have to look at his art from a completely different angle. If they're moved by that art, there's a sense of urgency that gets built in because they're not. He's not from here. Yeah, I think that's a great you know? point. I think that you know, I, my my wife and I, who are you know, we're partners in kennel projects and deciding to you know quit when I quit teaching two years ago and do that. That it's not that we want to leave Columbia, but that need to get out and let another audience see your work is right. absolutely essential to it's, growing. You have to. And so, you know, I've said this for, for at least a year, probably more like two to three years, I've been saying we've got to get our local artists outside the city of Columbia. We've got to do it. You've got to get people out. You've got to push them into, they don't have to move, nope. but they have to get out. Unfortunately, we've seen all too many of our talent leave. Because. because they're struggling to make a living here, and they're finding if they go to Charlotte or someplace such as that, they're they because they're not from there or they're not they didn't start their artistic career there. There's a different sense of urgency for them, yeah. and so this gallery answered questions that we didn't even know that we had. I mean, it's it's the opportunity to take all the people that we love, that I have worked with and helped build for a dozen years, I now have an opportunity to get on the outside of the fence and take them with me. I'm not asking any of my artists to move from Columbia. Yeah. I'm asking them to go to a different market. Get a view from people who have a completely different sense of urgency about their art. And being able to start being selling art to people in another market. This gentleman that we talked to, this artist, and he's we've been told by numerous people he's the most prolific artist in date. We sat right there and he said, I don't even get but maybe a third of what I could charge. If I go to Detroit, if I go to New York, if I go to Chicago, I can get three times at those markets what I can get here because this is my home market. This is my local market. 
So it's the concept of saying, look, I've said this in the past. I thought about it today. I didn't know if I was going to say it on air because it's a controversial thing. You, you've heard me say this in the past. Um, you know, some different people have heard me say it. Local art is a scam. It's a racket. I'm not saying that from the artist's standpoint. No way, shape, or form am I saying any local artist is, is performing a racket. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it is a, it's, a, it's a racket or a scam based on the fact, and as we speak, I'm, I'm beginning to understand that that's probably a really harsh way to say it. But it's what I'm used to saying, so I'm going to say it that way, at least until I'm done saying it. Um, they, they, all, they all love to support their local artists. It's always, if you're a municipality, your point is, is that you support your people. And local art is a, it's a very emotional, um, it's, it's an it's a easy way for communities to tie in. They love to see people within their community show their creative abilities. And live the dream. And, and live the dream. But never a profit in your own town. So, again, we go back to the sense of urgency. We go back to everything that we've talked about as far as First Thursday and how that was built and the failure that we had there. The process, you know, the, the whole cycle. process of what each community goes through and the cycle. All of this ties into why I'm saying that local art is, is a racket or a scam. It's never a, a conscious decision. There isn't, there isn't anybody out there that goes, ah, ha, 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 we can, take, we can take advantage of all these local artists. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's an unconscious or a subconscious racket in the sense that small businesses love to support arts. But they don't necessarily pay them for their time. Well, we'll give you we'll give you exposure. I'm a restaurant. I'll yeah. put your stuff on the walls. I won't take anything if we sell it. And let's do a let's do a night where we'll do a wine night or a, a half price appetizer night and come meet the artist. Well, that's supporting your local artist. But ultimately, as I've learned from doing First Thursday, the person that makes the most money is inevitably the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that's not a statement against the restaurant. Hey, if they can make money, that's what they got to do. They got to pay right. their bills. They got to make money. But every time we do one of these First Thursdays, every time we do one of these State Street art crawls, inevitably, the restaurants and the bars and all those places are the ones that that's where everybody goes how many times I saw people walk in my door on a, on a State Street art crawl, come in, stand around for 45 minutes and talk and talk to the artists and really enjoy the art show, walk out that door and go right left or street. right and go right into one of the restaurants or bar and drop 40 to $50. Again, that's not a comment on the restaurants. That's not a comment on the bars. That's not even really a comment on the people. It's the path that we all have in our heads. We don't take responsibility for our local art. We, in our head, we're supporting local art by going to see them. This guy's having an opening. I'm going to go, I'm going to bring three friends with me. We're going to go in and we're going to support him. But you never had an idea, most people don't have an idea in your head of, 
I'm going to buy a piece. Right. That's or I'm going to put a down exactly. payment on a piece or whatever. Nobody goes in or very few people go in with that idea. They don't understand this idea of what it means to support. I mean, really, let's look at it like that. I've had a, a lot, even, you know, my dear friends, I support you, but they've never spent a dime. Right. What is Not support? What's the definition? Right. Well, support is showing up to every show that you have. I don't sure, disagree yeah. with that. But that doesn't pay your bills. Yeah. They don't call it child support or nothing. <laughs> you know what exactly, I'm saying? Exactly, exactly. It's the same type so, of deal. It's a financial commitment to make sure things happen. And that's why you hear me say things like, this is a racket or it's a scam. Because the way our brains, the way local art, the way local communities, the way it's written in our DNA, hey, it's Krajewski. Hey, it's, it's, it's Kendall Jason or Jason Kendall or hey, it's Winnie Lejeune or, you know, you know, Stephen Chesley or whatever. It's a great show. I'm going to go it, showing up as support. And it is. But nobody takes it to that next step to go, hey, this guy's got to pay his mortgage payment. He's going to pay his electricity bill. That's where sense of urgency comes in. Yeah. And local art because of that, that's why it's a scam. Because a lot of businesses, including me, I used it for First Thursday, we go back to what I said earlier about the guilt that I carried. We as communities love to support our arts, local art scene, because it helps build our communities. But how much do we actually build our local artists? That's why I call it a scam, because where our brains are, we all think we're helping. And we are helping. It helps you a crap ton sure. when 200 people show up to your exhibit compared to 50. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But if not a single one of those people buy a buys a piece of art from you, it's a mental victory, but it's not a physical victory. And after you do that, trust me, because I've done these shows enough to know that after you've done that three or four or five times done five shows and you've sold two pieces or three pieces in those five shows and you've had 200 people show up to every single show you question yourself you do you, you question, question what, what, am what, I do, what the is hell it, am i doing right, yeah, was i wrong <laughs> yeah was i wrong after all these years i'm all right yeah i'm, I'm I, yes that's that's you're right absolutely. so again p square is trying to address that but this gallery Comes out of nowhere, because I didn't know it was, I had no clue it was coming. This gives us the opportunity to test that theory and prove that theory. Can I bring you to Dayton, Ohio? Can I bring a Krajewski to Dayton, Ohio? Can I bring a Whitney Lejeune to Dayton, Ohio? Can I bring all the people that I know and love down here to a Dayton, Ohio, and see if that sense of urgency doesn't change? See how those people respond. Now, they're going to go into a building that is filled with, with art and local art. So we're going to be competing with the quote-unquote local scene. But I, I still believe that sense of urgency is the key to it. And, and having people being able to do something where I'm bringing a talent in that they don't get to talk to every day, they don't get to see, they don't have access to it, should allow you to be able to charge a fair market value, expect that fair market value, receive that fair market value. Because... You're not Right. Now it's like, holy crap, I'm moved by that piece of art. And if I don't buy it now, I probably won't get it. Actually, 
was talking to somebody about four or five weeks ago about exactly that. It was an artist. And she was telling me about, she said, it's funny you say that. I had a friend who was literally this week or two weeks ago was out in San Fran. And he called me up and was like, oh my God. I just, I just went to this art exhibit and I just saw, my God, this person's art, this, this lady's art is like off the chain. There's this one piece that I absolutely love and I don't know what I should do. Should I, should I buy it? Or should I maybe try and like offer her less and see if she'll give it to me? Like, I don't know, because I'm only going to be here for like another two days. I don't know what to do. And she was like, you got to do what you feel is right. She said, Mark, he showed up, came back to town from San Francisco. He went back and bought that piece of art and paid her her price. Because in his brain, because he told me this, in his brain, he realized he would probably never see that piece of art again. And he better buy it while he's in front of it. And he paid the price. And that's what art's supposed to do. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what it's supposed to do. So we get into this local art thing, and it's like, I love local art. I am local art. That's what it's all about. It's what it's been about for me for 12 years. I build local art community. That's everything that I do. But we have such a twisted version of what support is that I have to take a pretty shocking stance in calling it a racket or a scam because... We have to change our, our minds. We have to change our mentalities. Right, and because otherwise it's just going to keep being what it is. And it's what just it mediocrity is. at some point. So we're hoping that getting this space in Ohio is going to give us that opportunity to, to, to prove that point and get all of our people down here that we've worked so hard for 12 years. We're not leaving South Carolina. We're taking South Carolina with us. We're going to still be here. We're and still going to be working it's a vacation, with. You know, it's, tell you it's, it's a vacation. You know what I'm saying? It and we're still going to we're still going to come down and do events. As a matter of fact, what we want to do is we want to bring some of the Ohio artists down here. You know, our old space, which is now Track uh, Galleries, uh, Twin Rabbit Artist Collective. They're really good friends of ours, and they've already said, hey, when you've got somebody from Ohio you ready to bring down, this is your space. It's yours. You, let's work out the date. It's yours. Yeah, Just like awesome. the old days of you, you know, curating shows down here, if you've got somebody from Ohio, bring them down. So this process, while a lot of people, I think, are confused, like, is he leaving us? Is he not leaving us? Is he taking this talent to another city? In effect, I am taking my talents to another city, but only in the sense that I'm expanding and growing bigger. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to take all the people that I know and love and give them an opportunity outside the city and then bring some new people that I am meeting and loving and being inspired by back into the city to hopefully inspire some growth in Columbia. Yes. Yeah. And the same thing up in, in Dayton. You know, but ultimately, this is about continuing to work with my local Columbia, South Carolina art scene, but by giving them the opportunity to get out and get appreciated by new people and start finding collectors of their artwork in new cities and, and have new impacts in new cities. Not asking any of them to leave or move or anything like that. Just simply giving them the opportunity to actually sell art at fair market value. I get the feeling that this is going to be uh, uh, episode one. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, cause I, Actually, now that you say it. Yeah, I think, I think that, yeah, you're right. once everything's rolling and after we've, you know, yeah. we'll have some visuals too yeah. to maybe add to this thing and have 
have have you back in and yeah, because I'm I am ecstatic when I you know when I saw you at New Year's uh, that I was just like man I'm so amped for this because just well first of all it takes incredible courage to say the things that you're saying which are absolutely just obvious truths if you're living it and you're an artist you understand that um, but it also it takes a lot of courage to to, to to make the pivot, like you're saying, and change, make some changes to hopefully um, instigate some kind of change, yeah. you know, and inspiration for other people. It's scary as hell. I'm it's, sure it is. It's very, and like I said, the financial side to it, you know, again, people have to realize, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't really make any money off of a friend of mine. I didn't. And when we closed the store, I didn't, I didn't leave with any money. So this endeavor to move up there, that's why there's a GoFundMe. And I know GoFundMes are a little bit, I come, my parents were older when they had me, so I come from an older generation. Yeah. Asking for money, tough, doing man. things like GoFundMes, man, that's not in my DNA. Uh, it it kind of, you know, it gives me the willies, you know. My, and, it, and now that we're, we're on this, we're at this point in the podcast too, like if you're listening and you listen all the way uh, through this, there'll be a link in the description to the gun, to the GoFundMe account. You know, they, these, this dream that Mark shared with us today is not without support. And if you are interested in this story and you want it, help out with this endeavor, you know, just click the link in the description and, uh, and go check it out. And, you know, even if it's, Five bucks. Five bucks is, exactly. is, is five bucks they didn't have to begin with. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? So um, please make sure you check that out uh, when you see the, the links exactly. as well. Man, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to <laughs> you want to throw in there? I had a lightning round, but I think we've covered all of it. Oh, did we go point, through it? <laughs> for the most part. I mean, we definitely talked about dealing with artists versus dealing with the public. Yeah. Um, and, you've, and you've pretty much told me where you want to be in five years. Yeah. Um, I mean, we would, we would, so the one thing that we can add in, and this is, this is a, this is a down the road thing. This is actually an idea that I've had, eh, well, since we moved to State Street, maybe, maybe four years, um, which I think now that we're getting, we're, we're working to get our space and date and our relationship with track, um, we've actually talked to track about this, but I had an idea a few years ago of actually starting Somebody told me there's a name for this. I don't know what a name is. I'm just going to say it as the way I see it. It's basically a tour. What what we want to do is we would be a gallery and date track would be the gallery in Columbia. Uh, they know somebody out, I think, in Washington State. And I want to start meeting some people like on the East Coast, like Philly or Baltimore, or maybe a uh, like a Charlotte or something like that. But the whole idea would be is we start a tour. So we have, say, six galleries in six different cities signed up. And each of those galleries picks one local artist. And then we trade them oh, around. Yeah. So basically, you know... I, like a tour I would, as in like a, like, a, like a band tour. Exactly. So like I would have somebody... You know, I would take my artist and I would give it to somebody in, like a gallery in Knoxville, and they would be there for a year, and then they would go from Knoxville to say Columbia. And they would not a year; I they'd be there for a idea. month. They go there for for a month. They would go to say Charlotte for a month, and they would go to say Baltimore for a month, and then they would go to like Philly from something like that. But each one of us comes up with one artist, and so each month 
my gallery would have somebody traveling in from outside. I'd get somebody from Philly, somebody from Baltimore, somebody from Charlotte, somebody from Columbia, somebody from Knoxville. And that creates you know. a, a, another uh, extreme sense of urgency. Right. Because it's like, right. you, know, you know something new is coming. Right. Something to look forward to. Right. Right. And if you really like this, you better really get it because like if it goes to the next town, do you probably ain't going to get it because the next town is going to buy it. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, and that, you know, again, that's a that's a work in project or a project in work. And it, it, it's a five year, 10 year. I don't I don't know. It's it's something that we've floated that um, obviously track is like, hell yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> you sure. Know, they're in on it. So. You know, it may even be something that develops faster than five years. But that is another place that we would like to be, another kind of thing that we'd like to cool. do. We're going to continue doing our signature events, so our, our collectively supported arts that we've done. We're going to continue to do those. Um, we're, we've already got a couple of artists up, up in Ohio that are signing on. Um, the guy that has recruited us into Front Street is trying to get us to do one with all of the like work through the artists and the so basically Front Street is an artist colony. It's it's actually three separate buildings. So we're going to be in the largest building of the three, but there's actually three separate buildings. And I think there's over thirty, somewhere between thirty and forty studio slash gallery spaces mixed in amongst these. Wow. Uh, there's anywhere from we have uh, two different glass blowers. We've got a, a number of pottery people we've got uh, uh, somebody that just moved in as a glass artist they do like a lot of like fused glass and stuff mm -hmm. like that um, I don't know how many painters um, there's a guy there that actually is kind of funny we went there for their they have a first Friday mm -hmm. which is completely within their three building complex it's not a streetwise thing they open up on first Friday and all the artists uh, are basically there and have their gallery space open. So we were walking around, and there's a guy sitting there with cigar box guitars. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious. So we got to connect with another cigar box guy. But he has a studio space there, so he works on his guitars and stuff like that. Uh, there's a fish, there's an aquarium guy there. There's an architect in there. There's a furniture restorer that's in there. He's wow. a professional. Yeah, there's... I mean, they, they've got a very eclectic lineup. Uh, there's actually somebody in there that's, um, he actually has a CNC machine and a laser cutter. And he, he just, he has it in there because it's a passion of his and he will take projects. If you need, need something, something done. done, you bring it to him. You bring a, a CAD or, a, or a, a drawing to him and he'll cut it out of sheet metal for you or whatever. I mean, it's, cool. it's just extremely eclectic grouping of, of, of individuals and businesses that is so freaking cool. So again, we're excited about that and being able to bring our artists, you know, that Along we love and bring them into this. And hopefully, like, I would love to see some crossover. I would love to see some of the artists that are in that actually partner and do work joint work with some of my artists from down here. You know? you know, and also it may inspire some kind of change how things run here. That's know? what we're hoping for. That, yeah. That's, it's about crossbreeding. It's about getting, getting what works in another community and seeing if that works here and the same thing here. What do we have that's a talent here that can go out to other communities? Yeah. And, you know, Dayton is an interesting 
city. I, you know, I've spent half my life at Dayton. I will be very honest with you. I left Dayton 15 years ago because you know, most people don't know about Dayton. Most people don't understand Dayton's place in history. Of course, if you have connected in some way to the United States, you understand airplanes and the Wright brothers. That came out of Dayton. Wright brothers were in Dayton. They actually owned a bike store. They were, they were, they, they made bikes. They had an entire bike shop right down in downtown Dayton. Um, so air, air flight came out of Dayton. It did not come out of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. <laughs> Sorry, North Carolina, but it did not. That was merely the place that had enough wind for them to get their first plane up off the ground. Uh, which was a little more of a glider. It did have a, a motor to it, but it, it was very wind-aided to make it work. But the rest of it, after Kitty Hawk, was all, all, it was all developed in Dayton. Actually, Wright Pat Air Force Base is named after Wright, the Wright brothers. Um, Dayton had, has a place and in, in, in industry. It, is, it has been an industrial city it was one of the gems and the, and the the crown for years and years and years until really the mid the mid fifties that it started to lose its place. But at one point, it was the second largest auto manufacturing city in the United States, behind only Detroit. Um, a lot of your uh, your the, the 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 advancements that we have on cars today actually came out of Dayton. Uh, Patterson is uh, he was an automotive. Um, inventor, and he came up with a couple of, I think the auto start, I think, came out of Dayton. That wow. was something he did. I so no Dayton as a, whole, as a whole has a very, very, very deep, rich history. They had Mead. Mead was from Dayton. Uh, National Cash Register, NCR, that's a Dayton thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of industry that was housed and born and headquartered in Dayton. 15 years ago, they lost it. That's why I left. I loved Dayton, but I left because they were going into such a slump. They lost all their headquarters. Meade's gone. Meade got bought by West Vaco and they moved it out to like Vermont or something like that. NCR has been bought so many times and split up and it's gone. Um, you know, so many of the headquarters that were in Dayton, they lost. AC Delco was a huge presence in Dayton. Gone. There is zero AC Delco left. How many people had jobs at AC Delco? Yeah. Gone. Like and, just and, manufacturing jobs, gone. And now, though, it's like there's some kind of a resurgence. So now there's a resurgence. You know, they went through that period of, of darkness. They, like, I literally left because, dude, you could, I mean, you could feel it. It was like the depression was, it was real. It was serious. Um, they're coming back. They're fighting back, you know. I think we've had this conversation in the past about um, they have they have their and I'll, I'll say this relatively quickly, but they have a they have an arcade there. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, we've talked about that. you know, and it's it 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 dwarfs the size of our arcade here in in Columbia. Like it's it's actually eight buildings. It's that big. They have a ginormous rotunda, which is a round glass enclosed space. Um, They've had this thing for, I think it's 100 years. I think it's about 100 years old. It's been defunct for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, a developer has moved in. He's partnered with the University of Dayton. 
Um, and they are in the process sometime within the next year to gonna two years. It, right? It's going to be, oh, they are already renovating it as we speak. Mm-hmm. And within the next year to two years, it will be open. And 50% of the space is going to be living and office space, but the other 50% is, is what the University of Dayton took over. And they're basically putting extensions of their engineering program, of their business, and of their art school all in half of this space. And the idea is to merge the three together to help artists see, you know, the business side of things and see, you know, how engineers process and how they do things and vice versa all the way around. Which it should be like that. Which it should be. And, you know, this is right in the dead center of of Dayton, like literally right smack dead center of it. It's a very vital piece that they're putting into play that is going to really bring a lot of people into town. Um, I'm excited about it because I remember as a kid, I remember the arcade and wishing, you know, how cool would it be if it was open and there were stores in there and all that kind of stuff. To see that be revitalized, kind of like we did with the arcade here in town. They've done a hell of a job with that. It's such a cool space now. But to see the arts getting involved in it and, you know, they're going to create a certain amount of the living space is going to be created specifically for artists because they want to have it at a, at a I don't want to say rent control, but it'll be, some of the space will be designed for artists to be able to live and be able to have studio space on the other side of the building so that they can have live work within the same infrastructure. And they're trying to build the price point in that helps with that. And they're creating a model. They're creating a model. And it's an exciting thing. I see the place growing. But we had this, I think you and I had this conversation at one point, or maybe it was somebody else, but the question was, well, you know, why, why is it that we keep seeing other cities like Dayton doing these yeah, kinds of things? Yeah, we, oh, we had a similar you conversation, know, yeah. What, what, what is it that they've got that, that places like Columbia doesn't have? And, you know, a somewhat controversial answer, but I think it's the right answer, is... You know, Dayton lost everything. And that, and that may be a dramatic statement, but think about it. They were some of the world headquarters for some of the largest corporations in America, and they're gone. Yeah, well, I think we talked about this, too, is the, the idea that there's no industry in Columbia. There's no industry, and Columbia isn't broke. True. If you understand what I'm saying. No, I get it. I now, get it. obviously, you and I will say it is broke. <laughs> there's a lot of artists Not out there. broke as in no. broke, but broke. <laughs> There's a lot of artists out there who will say, yes, there's something really wrong here. But, but what I mean is, is when you look at something like Dayton, Dayton had to lose basically every bit of its identity, every bit of its way of generating income that they were used to, to be able to take on risk, to do things that most municipalities wouldn't do. You know, and one of the challenges that we have in this city is that we're, we tend to take our city for granted. Yeah. You know, we, we, take, we take our city governments for granted. We take, we take our downtowns for granted. We take our Vista for granted, our Main Street District, now that it's up and running. We take it for granted. And that's a wonderful thing. Security is an absolute wonderful thing. And we all search for security. But security is the very thing that stops most people from growing. It stops progress for the most part. We get, we look for that level of security 
And then we don't want to do anything that could damage or could push that security away from us. Yeah, I think that's uh, human nature. I think that we totally. do. We, we, that's something that I'm very conscious of myself as well. I feel comfortable. It's yeah. time for me to do something time different. Time to do something different. And when, when we talk about it as a city and we go, well, why is it that Austin could do this or Dayton could do this or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, nine times out of ten, the answer is because they didn't have a choice. Yeah. But Columbia never has been in a position where they didn't have a choice. Yeah. We're comfortable. We, we like where we are. We're comfortable with it. We may fuss about it. We, we may get on podcasts and go on. We may get on free times and rant and rave about things. We may get mad about this aspect or that aspect. But most of those people aren't willing to leave Columbia and go somewhere else because they don't see the change that they really, truly value. And that may be a bold statement, and I'm not trying to make alienate anybody, but it's the truth. Why does something happen in Dayton? It's because they didn't have a choice. They had to reinvent their city. They had to reinvent their downtown. I mean, I told you the other day, there's a building there that I've known as a child. It's called Mendelssohn's Liquidator. It's like an eight-story tall, old manufacturing building in the heart of downtown. It's, a, it's basically a guy that goes around and buys, like, uh, discontinued lots he has one whole floor by the way if you are ever looking for anything like really funky cool that you want to put into some of your art make the trip to date <laughs> Mendelssohn's liquidator he's got a floor which is nothing but electronic parts and when I say a floor I think each floor is probably like about 10,000 12,000 square foot he's got a floor of nothing but electronic parts Chips, LEDs, boards, cables, Sweet. screws, cabinets. Like, it's insane what this guy had. This guy's had this business there for, I don't know, 30 years, something like that. He just sold his building. He just sold it to a developer. I don't hold me to this number. I think somebody told me he sold that building for like 18 or $19 million. Jeez. What's the developer going to do with it? He's putting housing in it. That's where Dayton has gotten to. They've reinvented themselves. They are changing their identity and their brand, and they're, they're embracing things that they would have never done 15 years ago. Because I was there 15 years ago, and they weren't doing it. So that's why I'm excited about Dayton. It's a part of me, and I want to bring my artists to Dayton. I want them to experience that. And maybe, just maybe... Through that experience, maybe through this podcast, we can start making waves in the city of Columbia that, you know, security is, I get it, it's a way of life. But the flip side is, is if you ever want to be in Austin, which we've talked about since I've been in business here, 12 years we've heard everybody at City Hall going on about, we want to be the next Austin. You'll never get there until you're willing to make decisions that scare the crap out of you and your constituency. You have to reach. You have to, you can't keep making decisions that are safe and secure. As long as we're doing that, we'll never become a player like an Austin can become or like any of the others, like a Portland, Oregon. Think of that place, man. They're like so far ahead of most other people in the artistic world and the way that they deal with each other. You got to take risk. That's what I'm doing going to date. <laughs> All right, well, I think we'll end it right there. So yeah, let's take do that. <laughs> Thanks, Dave.
Thanks, Mark. We appreciate you being here. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.